Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, we got to get right to it here. No time to lose. We're going to have Eric Pincus on later as well. He's got a lot of interesting stuff to say. So let's get to the 14 and 19 Atlanta Hawks. We're going to go in alphabetical order this time for the East. Three and four since we last checked in on them. 15th in the NBA in net rating. They've been a little bit uh, unlucky. They're right at even in net rating. Had a rough loss today to Miami. 10th on offense, 114.0. They are 22nd on defense, also 114.0 projecting. Still for the AC, 33 wins, 56% chance the playoffs through Raptor, only 20% through ELO. And Raptor, I think, is projecting for the fact that they're going to get some guys back. What is the latest uh, on their injury issues here, Danny? Well, so the ones that we have more recent updates, uh, Cam Reddish has missed the last week due to right Achilles soreness. He did not play again on Sunday. Bogdan Bogdanovich is doing one-on-one stuff with contact. Still no timetable on him. It's not going to be before All-Star. And then Trey Young uh, was questionable due to right adductor soreness. He played, but he did look limited to me. Young basically didn't get to the free throw line for the first three quarters, only took one shot in the first, I think, 18 minutes of the second half. But John Collins had 19 in the third quarter. Um, so yeah, they're, they are dealing with a bunch of injuries. And then one other quick note, Tim Reynolds of the AP had this, and I just thought this was incredible. Rajon Rondo's last seven appearances in games in Miami have come playing for seven different teams. <laughs> Like, that's incredible. Yes, and the Heat were quite glad to see him because he was negative 17 today uh, in 12 minutes. And uh, yeah, people are going to continue to crap on Trey Young. As you mentioned, he was not himself uh, today, uh, but he was still plus nine in uh, 36 minutes. And the Hawks definitely are really pushing for some wins. Danilo Gallinari was two of 10 in this one, 0 of 7 for three. Actually, had been shooting well from three coming in, 41%. And some of these stats I'm going to get to here, I compiled before tonight's game. Uh, the big biggest difference between what he's been doing in an overall sense in OKC and and this year when I really expected him to be a six-man candidate and for 20 million a year you're kind of hoping that he is going to be uh three-point shooting is about the same around 40 percent but he's 19 percent on long twos which is not a huge part of his diet but an important part as I'll explain later uh and then getting to the rim it has not looked as good he has four dunks this year after 31 last year that rate is way lower he's played a little over 400 minutes so far this year the overall true shooting is down usage is down as well which is interesting because a lot of his minutes are it was in theory to try to be a guy who's going to generate offense on the second unit with Trey Young out of the game that really has not worked at all he's turning it over a little bit more as well and shooting a little bit worse 
at the rim so those are the overall things to talk about here any differences Danny, that you've seen just watching him obviously he had the ankle sprain early uh that cost him a bunch of time yeah i mean that's obviously been been a big factor in it i i think that especially i mean we're dealing to an extent with smaller sample size theater here with galinari because the time he's missed i do notice a little bit less burst not that burst was a particular gallo strength but you you've talked about this a lot that you sometimes actually notice it with more athletically limited players more so I hope some of that comes back with time like you know a little a little bit a little bit too much settling not as much dynamic stuff but so I I don't know exactly what he's going to be for the rest of this year and next year yeah he did have that I think a 27 point game last week but here's why that shooting on long two and his drives are a a big problem and if you look at his overall drives this year he's shot only eight out of 21 on drives he's had 51 in 442 minutes last year he had 233 and 1834 minutes so a few more uh, on a per minute basis but he just shot it much better on his drives and he basically is not driving to pass at all he only had 14 assists on drive last year this year uh on his 51 drives he has two assists uh, and four turnovers but i mentioned that he's not getting to the foul line quite as much on these drives and that he's not finishing at the rim as well and then he's also not shooting the long two as well and where most of his long twos come is in isolation now they're not just having him iso against a guy his size he can't really beat that anymore but he can in theory iso against guys who are smaller than him and so when you run a pick and roll with him if you play it conventionally he's going to absolutely kill you on pick and pops and as the role man last year he was awesome averaged 1.48 points per possession as a pick and roll role man last year most of that as a pick and pop guy uh, getting open it takes a lot of threes out of that this year uh has been even better somehow he's 1.6 points per possession as a pick and roll roll man this year so you can't not switch that pick and roll with him but if you can then he needs to beat the isolation and he is really struggling in isolation this year not a huge sample but he's only got 11 points on 22 possessions and i watched all of those possessions many of them came against teams that do pick and roll switch like the celtics he was trying to go against like peyton pritchard or aaron neesmith for example and the other thing that stood out to me is that they're getting the ball very late in the clock on these you know he's making the catch with like five seconds left but he's uh has a lot of plays where he just can't even create enough separation to avoid getting like his three-pointer blocked like there's been other times where he's had a big switch on him like drew you blanks blocked his three and he's taking just a lot of plays where he's not even putting it on the floor at all he's just shooting it uh just hoping that the guy's going to get his hands down and shooting it pretty well pressured and so it hasn't really been very good for him as an isolationist and that's a problem because if you can just switch that pick and roll with him with impunity then he basically just kind of becomes a spot-up shooter and that's not what they're paying 20 million dollars a year for yeah i think that's a really good point even though it wasn't a loss i thought that there were some really nice moments from clink Capella defensively in in the game today and you know like you think about the theory of that trade Travis Schlenk giving up a first round pick because his thought was that Clint Capella at Clint Capella money was a better contract than he, the Hawks could get as a free agent big I think that that thought process ended up being completely right yeah I think that what did that end up being the 17th pick this year that end is the one that ended up getting traded for uh for Poku right it was Brooklyn's pick the one that they got in the Allen Crab trade so yeah that's looking like they made a good move there and 
you know, other than Gallo, I mean, it seems like guys are having decent individual seasons for this team. But of course, they gave up a 10-0 run at the end of the game in crunch time. Uh, you tweeted out the league pass alert, and then you're like, two, a minute 30 later, it was a 10-0 run for Miami. In Miami, is an absolute house of horrors. Because remember, last year for the Hawks, it was they had like a nicely i think they were like up five with like a minute left they're up six and then they it was six. Oh, you looked this up Good. no they, yeah, no, yeah. they so, showed they showed the highlights like 10 times during that miami run <laughs> well what did it end up being like they score like the last five points of regulation and then like the first 20 of overtime like it ended up being garbage time at the end of overtime didn't it last yeah year? yeah it was something something like that i and that was the the game when bam and jimmy both got triple doubles the first time in nba history the two teammates got it which they've done again since um but yeah it yeah it was a little bit crazy that that happened again man it is crazy to think that i've been working with helix sleep since 2015 and i think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners if you've never heard it before that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom and there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one size fits all they found the one formula the one mattress that was going to work for everyone my then girlfriend now wife and i ordered that mattress we ended up having to return it because hey guess what not everyone is the same and then she did some more research and found helix sleep we took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types and uh, helix offers 20 unique matches every sleeps differently and helix matches are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences hot or cold side sleeper back sleeper so take that helix sleep quiz find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door free of charge it's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home you're like well how should i order this if i can't sleep I'm like yeah you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do i take my shoes off do i leave my shoes on but then my feet kind of hang off the bed because i don't want to put my shoes on the bed and is it weird that i'm laying here for more than 30 seconds you can't tell anything under those circumstances you might as well just order it get it sent to your house get that 100 night trial they're 10 to 15 year warranty depending on the model and there's never been a better time to try a helix sleep mattress because they are offering 20 percent off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace easier slash capspace we talk about all the time here on the program that's helixsleep.com slash capspace this is their best offer yet i can attest to that since i've been working with them for nine years and it won't last long with helix better sleep starts now don't forget that slash capspace url to let them know that you came from us Man, I just love American Giant. Just an amazing clothing company. I was reminded again of how much I love it when I drove from California to Montana over the All-Star break. And you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold, particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas. You're like, well, I don't want to wear like my jacket in the car, but then I get out to fill gas. I'm going to be freezing. But the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm it's not too hot as well so i was able to wear it in the car not be too hot step out of the car and still be warm enough when i was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that i didn't feel like i needed my jacket even when it was cold outside and things are amazingly durable i proposed to my wife wearing an american giant hoodie in the grand canyon almost seven years ago i still own that same hoodie i still wear it constantly and american giant has since 
spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us but I think we can we can jump on to the Boston Celtics. The Celtics are 16 and 17 on the season, three and four since the last 15 and 60. They're 11th in net rating, 13th in offense, 14th in defense, which is a real drop. They're missing Marcus Smart a lot there. Uh, 538 projections have shifted to fifth in the East with 40 wins, 96% chance on Raptor, and 82 on Elo because they've had a couple of losses recently. And the win, it was a, a, a game that I wasn't watching super closely in the second half because there were so many other things on. I heard the third quarter was absolutely miserable, but ended up having a, a stretch run where Jason Tatum hits two huge layups. They trap Bradley Beal functionally twice and win the game yeah that was without Jalen Brown and obviously with Marcus Smart out even longer Brown missed it due to left knee soreness they didn't really have a great option to guard Bradley Beal and he lit them up uh, with 46 points and and, uh actually let's talk about that game a little bit more later we can use it to transition into Washington uh, as well hey last East 15 and 60 we did a game between these teams two teams too but uh they're usually pretty well actually most Washington games are pretty damn exciting these days but I wanted to do a a little bit of check-in on some of their guys uh Jason Tatum had really been struggling he had mentioned that he'd been struggling with COVID and his conditioning and had a great game as we'll talk about a little bit more against Washington but 54% true shooting coming in Jalen Braun was down to 59% true shooting as well after a great start both of those guys have really fallen off particularly on the three-pointer both of them were over 40% for a while but now Braun's down at 38% and Tatum 37% for the year and also Kemba Walker Jay Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum their three best guys when those guys play together their starting lineup only a 4.1 net rating uh that's I think is going to improve as Kemba Walker gets better I thought he had a nice game again tonight uh but careful with those numbers because half of those minutes are with Tristan Thompson and Daniel Tice together as starters as Brad Stevens has really cycled through again he was back to more semi-ogile and Javante Green in this game uh Aaron Neesmith had been in the rotation then he was taken out of it um but I also wanted to do a a check-in on one of your favorite guys here Robert Williams Danny yeah and Robert Williams the the theory behind like I I said before the season started that I thought there was a real chance that he would that he would end the season as their starter I mean Daniel Tice has been good again I think that's a big part of it but Williams I I will say that I had loftier expectations from this is kind of similar to when I talked about Mitchell Robinson a couple weeks ago and it's like I was very ambitious on them and I don't think they've reached that but I still think there's some real positives there yeah absolutely and the offensive rebounding has been awesome his offensive rebound rating is actually even higher than Tristan Thompson although he does it in a completely different way flying in from the perimeter with athleticism or as it, as someone misses a pick and roll layup he, he goes in for the tip slam those type of plays as opposed to the way that Tristan Thompson carves out space Thompson is uh he's having kind of a down year I would say uh but he's still at least a, is getting on the offensive glass uh one of the biggest things that was most important to me though is the defense from 
Robert Williams. And you'll recall coming out of Texas A&M, one of the big things that people really were interested in was his potential switchability. Last year in the bubble, he was absolutely nailed to the floor. Anytime he was in a switch or in just you know, a two-on-one situation with a, a guard coming at him in pick-and-roll defense, he was just getting absolutely traffic cone. And that's gotten a little bit better. And I'm not sure what the reason for that is. Um, you know, part of it is just that you're not going against playoff opponents uh, all the time. That probably helps a little bit. Uh, but also, I think he just has dealt with so many nagging injuries in his career that it's just, you know, where it's, there's been like hip issues and groin issues. And that's one of the nice things is that he really hasn't missed time at all this year. For he, This has been probably the longest extended stretch in his career that he's been healthy and he's been able to stay on the floor a little better with fouls. Still 4.1 for 36 minutes. That's not that amazing. But, you know, I watched all of his... Uh, possessions in which someone attempted a shot against him in iso and teams are 0 for 11 <laughs> from the field against him in isolation and i watched all those and probably only two of them were good looks and uh he was really good he finished the overtime against the pels and he had a block in isolation on zion and a block in isolation on ingram where he blocked his three-pointer he's gotten a couple of guys on jump shots with that incredibly quick jumping and reaction time that he has uh so you know there are a few other ones where he's still going to be foul prone guys got good looks on him like brad beal i think got, got a pretty good look on him on a switch so i wouldn't want to go to that as something you're going to do a lot but very late in the clock for example and against certain players i think you would actually be okay switching them out which you couldn't have necessarily said last year so that's definitely good um any comments that you've had so far just well, watching him on his defense i think that his footwork has gotten better you know a little bit shorter strides a little bit more in balance which has which has really helped him and that's often something you see for a player as they really get into the league can get a little bit more coaching and williams you know had had another you know short let's call it a short run between high school and the nba just because he wasn't he wasn't in college for that long and so just to get that coaching and and in the nba he's had all these nagging injuries so i I think he's looking better there and offensively you know kind of getting into playing a little bit more of a role but not a ton i mean he like his usage has gone up a little bit all the way to 15 percent but finishing well around the basket and i don't think williams is ever going to be a great jump shooter i don't think the celtics necessarily like necessarily even need or want that but yeah i so i'm not at the point yet where i'm super confident like oh he's going to be a starter by the end of the year but i still like the steps that williams has taken yeah i think so now is he does get a fair number of blocks he's at uh 3.3 blocks for 36 minutes that's where he was last year so he's already played more minutes this year than he did last year uh when he was only or, able to or play his 29 games yeah yeah, that's right. So uh, again, getting the reps has been huge for him. And he's a, an unbelievable finisher around the basket, 73% on twos. He'll take a few jumpers every now and again, which I'm like, eh, you know, maybe shoot a little better than 62% from the line. But before you're going to do that, I did look at the numbers for how teams are finishing against him at the rim. It's not very great. It's about 60%. That is slightly below average for a, a center. That's what teams shoot when he's in position at the rim. And then a, another metric that you can look at there too is just a, as an overall pick and roll defender synergy has numbers of now again there's a little, a little skewed here because this is when guys actually take the shot against him in, in pick and roll but teams are taking a jumper off the dribble about 63 percent of the time that compares actually pretty favorably to you know just to kind of get a sense of these numbers that's about the same as what they'll shoot against rudy gobert and then the rest of the time is split evenly between floaters and going to the rim but when teams have gone to the rim they've been able to get pretty good looks against of 1.2 points per possession in a limited sample for comparison 
Rudy Gobert teams are getting 0.86 points per possession when they take it to the rim against him out of pick and roll it and try to finish so obviously you don't expect Robert Williams to be Rudy Gobert but I think he's gotten to the point where he can be effective enough defensively that he's not going to kill you and he obviously provides some pressure on the rim that this team desperately needs because they don't get to the rim very much uh, at all let's turn to this game uh, against Washington here and you know we can we'll work in uh, the Wizards here, Do we before, have their bef- stats yet? Yes, I have them in. Uh, so the Wizards for the season, they're 13 and 19, 7 and 2 since the last 15 oh, yeah. and 60. Um, net rating of negative 4, which is 24th, and a big upgrade on where they were before. 20th in offense, 25th in defense. They've moved from the Raptor 538 projections from 15th two weeks ago to 11th in the East now, 28 wins. And their playoff odds have gone up but to 11% Raptor, 18% ELO. Ted Leonsis can smell that 10th seed, baby. Uh, So this game against uh, Washington was a a real missed opportunity for them. Uh, They led by eight with under three minutes to go. They led by five with under a minute to go and managed to flub the lead. Jason Tatum had heroic six points in the last 35 seconds uh, or so. Uh, Just to finish up uh, on the Boston portion, I thought that Kemba Walker just continued continues to look a little bit better i've said this before i said it last year in the playoffs i'll continue to say it that running more through him as the initiator like that's what you have a point guard for right and to just get some offensive pace the wizards were trying to trap him with robin lopez early in the fourth and because they're worried about him either getting downhill into the lane or worried about him shooting the three off the dribble and so they he found daniel tice on a pick and pop tice hit three free throw line jumpers in a row to go on a nice run for boston and so i I still really like them getting the ball to kemba in these possessions because kemba is the guy who makes you and they had to go to him more obviously with jalen brown out with the knee soreness in this one but he's the guy who makes the defense adjust the most and actually gets them moving the ball gets an advantage gets the blender going let's tatum and brown play off a little bit more of an advantage um well and and on that point i think moving the ball is an incredibly significant element of what you just said because i think of kemba as being first of all he's you know better pick and roll operator than them but he's better at finding teammates you know jalen brown and jason tatum are getting better and i think they deserve credit for that but if you're looking for the kind of every down guy to create good looks for various teammates keep them engaged i think that kemba does a better job of that so we mentioned that they kind of change up the rotation jeff teague is back they're trying him again he actually played 22 minutes uh, and this one even played some next to Kemba Kemba's up to 33 minutes and Kemba's individual stats uh, you know are not necessarily going to be that great he had a couple of finishes at the rim that he could have done better on the the Wiz actually protect the rim pretty well and but the Wiz were in control thanks to the heroics uh, of Bradley Beal he was really messing up the Celtics pick and roll coverage they tried to have Tice hang back Beal was absolutely killing that early in the fourth quarter then they called timeout the next play down they're like all right we're gonna bring Daniel Tice further on the floor so then the Wizards set the screen even higher out on the floor and so that gets Beal going downhill at Tice goes around him for the and one and then what we thought was the clinching bucket to put him up five with 36 seconds left they have to double team Bradley Beal get it out of his hands and they get it to Bertans who they try to close down and Beal after getting double teamed way out on the floor does a hard cut to the 
rim and finishes a, a layup beautifully that is one of the best times to cut hard is after you've been double teamed out in the perimeter and they're everyone's like all right we did our job we got the ball out of his hands uh and you know so many guys like luca and james harden like don't really do that much after they get trey the young ball, but bradley beal did uh yeah yeah trey young is an example of that yes <laughs> <laughs> um so the celtics come back they call timeout they go to get the two for one and the whiz don't want to give up a three so they basically just let him drive in uh, essentially for an easy layup uh, and did it in about three seconds and the, boston, know, I, the yeah. boston announcers thought that there was a foul i did not see a foul on the play i thought it was a, it was there was contact but i didn't think it was enough for a foul well, well this is the first one where he was he was wide open the oh sorry one, i was thinking the second one yeah and i would like to see teams in this situation when you're up five like that or you're up for you're up two possessions basically and there's the other team is in a situation where they're trying to score quickly i think i really like to see teams switch in those situations just to and yeah you can press you can switch and then pressure up right like and you can maybe not help that much because you don't want to give up the three i i understand that thinking but just take a little more time off the clock like don't let him just attack your conventional pick and roll defense where you can get a shot early and if they t- take it and make a really difficult shot that's fine but and if you switch it's gonna make them take a little bit more time so they get it so quickly come back down beal gets double teamed sets up westbrook for a wide open corner three he had just made one of those and westbrook was one of five on threes in this game but he's still wide open in the corner and late in the clock misses it ball goes over the backboard so they get a timeout and then tatum got that beautiful twisting layup but that was just to cut it to one but i think it was okay that they went for the that they didn't go for the three there i mean it obviously worked out but i think at the time i think think they kind of wanted the three but it just wasn't there tatum tatum got the ball and they did and then i thought was a a a really interesting decision it was actually reminiscent of a celtics pace i think the celtics and pacers had two games like this a couple years over the last couple years but the celtics got that tatum shot number two of the three in this sequence to cut the lead to one and the wizards inbound the ball to bradley beal and beal i think he just assumed the Celtics were going to auto foul there wasn't there weren't really any guys near him he just kind of held the ball and turned and Boston didn't do that and then when Beal kind of I think he realized what was going on and freaked out a little bit he hit those he hit the sideline and fell down and so that meant that the Celtics didn't have to foul at all and instead had the ball down one with 12 seconds to go it was a really nice sequence Brad Stevens lauded his team for it after the game but obviously that's probably something that they drilled that's one of the differences between your good coach teams and your bad coach teams is all right we're gonna get in there we're gonna deny we're gonna be in position to where we can try and get a steal and we always say with those these comebacks it's either three shot fouls or turnovers seem like it is and and this turnover by Beal was key it was unlucky they're trapping him as they get the ball in against the baseline the Wiz had one timeout left they elected not to call it but you are you are taking a risk there and I think it's really on the inbounder to make the decision of whether to call the timeout like if you can get the ball into a guy who doesn't have anyone near him and you can bring the ball and you know you're not going to get trapped in the backcourt and it's a trusty guy go ahead and do it but once you've inbounded the ball if you have to take a timeout later then you can't advance it either and you could get stuck with an eight second violation so they inbounded it to be a pretty difficult position against the baseline and it was very unlucky drew gooden did a great job of pointing this out for the whiz broadcast that 
Beal slipped down and went out of bounds and it looked like maybe he would have gotten fouled but he actually just slipped on the wet spot that Jason Tatum had created as he made his acrobatic twisting layup and fell down earlier so it was just total bad luck that he slipped on the sweat stop obviously there's no way for the ball boy to get out there while uh, the team is in play and then the Celtics uh, got going with uh what may have been a five second violation uh on their own baseline yeah it could have been I mean it, it was uh, Bontemps thought it was pretty close he, he was there obviously but they get it in to Pritchard he has to just lob it up they had no timeouts left and then Tatum who was the inbounder went right back to get it I think that was what the play was the whole time they had to inbound it all the way over to half court uh nearly into the backcourt and then but they throw it into Tatum and in isolation the Wiz did not have a traditional big on the floor Rui Hachimura was the biggest guy and it looked like Bradley Beal was trying to force Tatum towards the baseline expecting help there and Hachimura came over way too late he did affect Tatum but Tatum made a beautiful acrobatic layup a, a type of play that uh, we lamented that he wasn't finishing in the playoffs uh, last year to give him the lead and then I thought uh the so there wasn't any help there they didn't double Jason Tatum and then the Celtics did exactly the opposite on the other end when the Wiz try to get it into Beal. Well, and one of the big reasons that the Celtics were able to do that was because Russell Westbrook was the inbounder. And as soon as, as soon as Russell Westbrook inbounded the ball, the Celtics never guarded him again. They just threw, I think that was Ojale, um, just threw him onto Beal, kind of put the clamps on. And one yeah. of the benefits there, I think a lot about a play that you and I saw in person with Chris Paul with this, is that when you're really on a guy, you not only is it like it's hard for him to shoot, but it's hard to see the passes as well. And I think that was one of the real challenges that Bradley Beal got in so he just basically couldn't do anything just kind of threw a shot up and it nearly went in yeah but he was definitely double teamed he didn't he wanted to make a pass there's 4.7 left and russell westbrook absolutely could have cut to the basket he didn't do it bertans tried to come over and give a passing lane but beal had to just force it up he said afterwards it was a prayer uh, that wasn't answered anything else you wanted to talk about here just in general for the whiz before we move on one thing that was crazy I, i tweeted this out at one point during the game is just the insane disparity between like kind of the load that the different players put on so so Beal, Westbrook, and Bertans combined for 90 points on 31 to 60 from the field, 20 rebounds and eight assists. The rest of the Wizards combined, and they played 11 guys in this game, so that's another eight players. They had 20 points on seven of 24 from the field, including missing all 12 of their threes, 16 rebounds, so fewer rebounds, and eight assists, the same number of assists. So it was a very top-heavy game for the Wizards, but one they nearly won. Beal was, in- Beal was incredible. Bertans had some big moments off the bench um, when that was actually, I would say, some of the Wizards' best minutes were when Beal, when sorry, when Bertans was Bertans was out there, including some stuff with with Robin Lopez. Uh, a couple of things. Do you have any more on this game, or can I move on? Um, no, nah, not really. I mean, Denny Abdi only playing seven minutes uh, is interesting and, to and see. I don't know if there was a limitation. I thought he should have been out in the floor of the last possession, even if he was a little bit cold, just because he's a better defender than some of the other options. Yeah, they actually had Howell Neto playing the two and Beal at the three for a lot of uh, their time down the end. Neto played 27 minutes after being questionable coming in with a left knee contusion. I will say, even though the numbers with Ish Smith on the floor weren't bad, I do think that Neto is better than him. Agreed. And just to take that tool, out of that very very blunt tool out of scott brooks's toolbox uh you never want to see somebody get injured but i think the the wizards have been better as a result of ish smith not being in the rotation just could do to some of the limitations that he has and, and his bad fit with westbrook um uh, a couple yeah. other just quick notes on the wizards we won't go into crazy depth on it because we talked about this game uh bertans his first dunk of the season was in the minnesota game he missed a three-pointer followed his own miss and got a tip dunk now it wasn't a tip slam or anything like that but that, i thought that was interesting 
And the Wizards are now 7-2, and two, that same record we saw, because they changed their lineup on Valentine's Day, which is the last time we did a 15-60 and 60 like this. And they're 7-2. and two. Overall, the Wizards are... So before today's game, they had a plus... About plus 6 net rating during those games. Um, They had had some real blowout wins in, in, in that stretch. That'll go down. I, I hadn't incorporated the stats yet. But that starting lineup had actually been outscored on the season so far. So it is... I mean, a lot of that is also just kind of structuring the bench... Bertans and Lopez, I think, have done well together, and they've been healthier, like they were dealing with COVID and everything, but it is good to see them play well. Westbrook has had some very good games during the stretch and some real clunkers. Uh, he had a huge 32-14-9 against the Lakers and then had a triple-double against Portland, but he also had had a had a rough game in their win over the Denver Nuggets, and, you know, he it's 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 the Russell Westbrook experience at, at this point. He's definitely better than he was early in the season when we were very concerned, but still not, you know. Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns. You can customize things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets. And you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk about all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. Perfect. Okay, next in order is... The Brooklyn Nets. The Nets are 22 and 13, a robust 6 and 1 since the last 15 and 60. They are fifth in the league in net rating at a plus 5.8 right now, which is really impressive. Fourth in offense, 23rd in, or sorry, first in offense, 23rd in defense. I might've had a split on or something like that. Um, 538 now projects them to finish tied with the Sixers for second in the East, 45 wins, and they're going to make the playoffs. So I, I think the, the place to start with this, with the Nets, is Kevin Durant has missed 10 of their last 11, but the uh, Nets have gone 8-3 and three in those games. Durant is not going to be back until after the Ulster break. Hamstrings are tricky, getting into all that. And Kyrie has missed some of that time as well, including Saturday's game against Dallas due to shoulder maintenance. But James Harden has done a very impressive job shouldering the load, and that's what they had this big eight-game win streak. Um, actually, technically, I think it was a nine-game win streak, but it was eight wins without Durant. Yeah, the one that they lost, we'll talk a little bit more about, uh, was Saturday with no Kyrie as well. And I think the most interesting thing is that James Harden, as efficient as ever, more efficient, in fact, than he's ever been. But the usage is way down. James Harden had some of the highest usage seasons. And the question was, hey, he generates a lot of his own offense here. Is he going to be able to sacrifice that a little bit? And is he going to be able to become more efficient in the shots that he does take? 
And I think the answer on both of those early on has been yes. Yeah, and he's. It's interesting that Harden is taking fewer threes uh, down to. He was in the you know nine to thirteen three points per thirty six in Houston. He's seven point four right now. Some of that is the decreased usage, just they have a lot of mouths to feed, and he's getting to the line less. But this is one of the craziest stats I have ever seen. When Harden's on the floor, this is the cleaning the glass version, so it takes out garbage time. When Harden's on the floor, the Nets have had a 121.9 offensive rating. That is absolutely fantastic. However, during that same time window, when Harden is off the floor, they've actually had a 124.3 offensive rating. So Harden actually, you know, like they've been worse on offense when he's been on the floor. I'm not saying it's fault. That just seems impossible. Like just because those numbers are both so ludicrous. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you've got Joe Harris shooting over 50% from three and some, you know, DeAndre Jordan is incredibly efficient. I mean, their support guys have all been really solid so far. And then you have these three guys as well are all over 60 percent true shooting uh the numbers with kd are on the floor as well we talked about that before they have a 12.3 net rating there um i did didn't watch the entire game saturday but i did want to go back and see how they defended luka Doncic. and chris asperzingas was back that does make things a, a little bit more difficult for this Nets team they start off with jeff green starting at center and obviously they famously have switched everything uh they tried andre robertson a little bit he's going to be back actually with the team with a 10 day after he got wave they are just trying to maintain flexibility at, at this point by keeping these guys on 10 days and, and no reason to have rack up money over the all-star break uh for example they've actually been switching a lot with deandre jordan who i thought actually did a pretty decent job staying on luca i thought luca did settle a little bit for the step back against him and obviously when luca has that working he's pretty unguardable uh but i thought deandre jordan did a pretty good job of staying in front of him. i thought actually jeff green was the guy who defended luca the worst that's where luca was actually able to get to the rim and finish over him and it is useful to have the center on you especially against this team with no kd where once you beat that initial guy who is in this case was jeff green there's really nobody else who's going to come over and impact someone like Doncic as he gets to the basket uh they did have nick claxton back he actually they're switching with him as well we'll see whether he can stay with guys or not obviously he doesn't have a ton of experience number 32 overall pick i think if memory serves last year but i was relatively pleased with the quality of shots that they gave up to luca himself obviously he was able to set up a fair number of threes but the Mavs were shooting it well from downtown as well and they when when chris has is out there they have a lot of shooting uh but they, i thought they forced him into some pretty tough jumpers off the dribble in aggregate and it was really kind of more of an offensive loss but no Kyrie, no kd i mean now you're really starting to get into uh the offense being a little bit more difficult where you've got you know claxton and bruce braun and some guys who are just not gonna be able to shoot uh, or make secondary plays so uh net's still rolling right along here i guess a good thing that they're going to keep kd out after the all-star break and now uh kd doesn't have to go to the all-star game too that's a, a nice little benefit let's turn to the 15 and 17 charlotte hornets two and two since the last 15 and 60 they are 22nd in net rating negative 2.3 21st on offense and 19th on defense although i certainly have no idea how on earth the team that i watched on friday night in person uh, was is 19th in defense so they did have some guys out they project for the 10th seed right 
right now, 31 wins, 27% chance of the playoffs with the Raptor, 38 with Elo. They've had Devontae Graham out quite a bit. They still haven't had all of their guys healthy to kind of have to make the decision of whether Ball or Graham or other uh, are going to not start. Uh, we did not see Cody Zeller in that game uh, against Golden State. So what did you make of the Charlotte Hornets? on friday night as you and i actually saw each other in person for the first time in uh a year what, 11 and a half months <laughs> well i mean it was a year minus a week basically and uh so yeah that's right i think the for me that the big part early on was charlotte was trying to take away you know we could say steph curry more broadly but also trying to take away threes and so what the warriors were doing was using ball and player movement more specifically back cuts to create not a layup line, but a dunk line. In the first quarter alone, the Warriors were 11 of 11 in the restricted area. I think all but one of those were wide open dunks, and then they were four yeah. of five, four of five from floater range. So that is a combined. Yeah. And those floaters, too, if like you look at the actual shot plot, they were like right, right on, on the, the line. border of the restricted area. Like they, they were within 10 feet. I think I, I had them at 13 of 13, and six dunks were for Kelly Oubre in that first quarter all assisted by Draymond Green I think pretty much all of them were on back cut Steve Kerr was getting into his back cut bag I, I'm sure it was uh quite titillating uh for for Steve Kerr but I mean this was and Kelly Oubre said after the game you know we're trying to take advantage of a young team and they were just letting themselves get back cut face cut and you know yeah you stop Steph Curry he had like two points in the first 18 minutes of the game uh but I mean they were just giving up it was one of the worst defensive quarters in the half court I've like ever seen from a team. I mean, just to give up that number of dunks, like I don't care how many threes you're giving up, like it's not worth that. Yeah, and Bismack Biombo was on the floor for part of it. Remember, they're playing without Zeller both in in that game on yeah. Friday and on Sunday. Zeller missed the sack game too. Um, and also note Gordon Hayward is missing the game on Sunday as well. Um, but but yeah, yeah, I, with that uh, with that hand issue, he did play, and I thought he he was kind of you know DM. Emphasized, uh, I thought uh, throughout most of the game, he had a nice third quarter in that game uh, against Golden State. Uh, but yeah, it was it was really uh, it was not, it was not very good. Uh, it, it wasn't and I thought you know the defense there were there were some definitely some nice offensive moments I mean LaMelo I, I didn't think this was the best LaMelo ball game I thought he was no. better better in their win over the Suns two days before they, yeah we'll talk about that in a second yeah but I thought Malik Monk continued to be on fire he was just drilling shots early forced it a little bit late 25 at one point I think he had 17 points in 15 minutes but he ended up 25 points yeah. in 26 minutes 5 of 11 from 3 and just and and I think all his twos around and forced to, you know forced a couple of bad passes but i thought he did a really good job overall being that microwave guy and you know like th this was a more limited version of the hornets that we saw that we saw but i, I there were def still definitely some positives f for this team even in what i would consider a bad loss other than the the minutes that the beginning of the second quarter when they basically made all the only run they ever did when curry was off the floor well this is actually something that i thought was fascinating and i completely agreed with it uh james borrego took a page out of former Bobcats coach Mike Dunlap's playbook and because they were just whenever Steph Curry and Draymond were on the floor they were just getting completely destroyed by back cuts in the half court and you know they just felt like they couldn't contain Curry so they went to late in the third it might have been like the very beginning of the fourth you know, I think they were down maybe like 18 points or something I want to say 19 points at the end of the third so they just went to a zone press and they may have only forced like one turnover in the backcourt but what they did was they just sped the Warriors up and like Andrew Wiggins really struggled uh, as 
well. They tried to like not guard Wiggins in the third quarter. That didn't really work that well either because he was able to just cut to the rim and, and get some dunks. So they just decided, hey, we can't stop these guys in the half court. We're down. We want to speed the game up. And so they did end up forcing 25 Warriors turnovers in that game. And a lot of it was, oh, you've beaten the press. Now you're trying to attack. And then Andrew Wiggins throws a pass and gets it deflected, right? They just made these guys play a little bit faster. And they got the ball out of Steph Curry's hands early. The Warriors don't have amazing decision makers. And yeah, you know, when they broke the press a lot of times, it would be a dunk or you just throw it to Kelly Oubre and he would just shoot a three wide open after like two passes and it could look really bad. But they also forced turnovers and they were able to get going the other way. They ended up getting back within nine at the end of the game. It never really was truly threatened but at least they took the Warriors out of that half court, half court offense that had been devastating them because you know they had they didn't play Biombo in the second half. They just went with Bridges and Jalen McDaniels as their backup front court. And like there's just no way you're gonna stop a team like the Golden State Warriors with that kind of inexperience in the front court. So I thought it was a good adjustment uh, from Borrego, even if it didn't really work out that well. What do you want to talk about in terms of Lamelo's game against the Suns? That was not one that I was able to watch, so I'll cede the floor to you. Well, I talked about it pretty extensively on Ethan Strauss's podcast with with uh, Anthony Slater that we did on, I think it was Thursday night, was was that game. And it, we talked about that for a long time. It, it, I encourage you to listen to it. But basically, LaMelo, Phoenix was switching everything, and they just put the ball in LaMelo's hands and let him create at the end of the game, and he just did everything. He was blowing by guys. He They had to sub DeAndre Ayton off the floor because he couldn't stay in front of him. He got a couple of really nice drives going to his right hand. He drew help, set up some threes, hit a three in isolation. He beat Jay Crowder going to his right hand for a right lap and they basically beat the suns like you and i had just recorded earlier in the day on the top prospects being like oh, you know is he really gonna be that good in iso and then he just beats the suns switching defense at the end of that game it was just very very encouraging and he didn't play as well against golden state i thought he had a, a fair number of turnovers some fouls he got back cut a lot it wasn't a very good defensive game from him at all uh, after the first quarter he was okay and then after that it was really a, a struggle uh, on both ends but you know still had 22 points and six assists and seven to 16 it wasn't the end of the world um let's get to chicago here this will be a somewhat truncated segment because uh pinkus and i are going to talk about zach levine and his renegotiation and extension possibilities later on uh but give us the stats here on the chicago bulls Danny. yeah the bulls are 15 and 17 on the season five and two since the last 15 and 60 they're around even net rating 16th in the league negative 0.4 14th in offense 19th in defense and 538 projects that they will win 29 games which is 11th in the east but those teams are super bunched up 13 percent chance raptor making the playoffs at 37 percent elo because of that recent success and an injury update for the Bulls. Lowry Markkinen is dealing with that shoulder sprain and Otto Porter Jr. is dealing, continuing to deal with lower back spasms. Both of them are out until after the All-Star break. The good news is that Otto Porter is doing more activity uh, per Billy Donovan, but he's still not cleared for contact drills. So I'm not even sure if after the All-Star break is going to be right. We'll have to see. Hopefully it's right. Also Chandler Hutchison. So he's been out for personal reasons and we, we didn't really know that much more. He is now being listed as out for a lower right leg contusion. So that might, maybe that occurred practice or something else we'll have to get more but at least that seems like good news I, I hope that it is uh and then 
I mean, the the better the better good news for the Bulls is that they're actually winning games, and this kind of they've been winning games as a lot of the other teams in that kind of bottom part of the East have been losing them. So they still have ground to make up, but they're they're in the mix now. Yeah, and Zach Levine uh, making the All Star team, and the, he would not have been my choice, uh, but I also didn't think that his selection was egregious uh, as it was uh, for some of the other players uh, who were selected ahead of the guys uh, that I preferred. Part of the reason that we're not going to talk about them as much was I was been planning to watch their game against Toronto, and then that got postponed. Uh, we'll talk more about that with t- Toronto, obviously. Um, this is interesting. I, I went and looked at the NBA's tracking data for post-touches. So this is a little bit different than Synergy. Synergy only counts it if you finish a possession out of a post-up. Uh, so, And this is just logged by the tracking data and software, not someone manually logging it like it is for Synergy. But Thad Young has 80 post-touches. Uh, put that in perspective, Joel Embiid leads the NBA with 380 post-touches. And Thad Young, most of the time, is going to be off of switches. He's playing a, as a backup center mostly uh but thad young is third in the nba in field goal percentage off of post touches he is 24 out of 38 which is pretty devastating work for him in the post their last game though was against phoenix they did lose that one they were in control for a lot of that game and then the suns uh, outscored them by 16 in the fourth quarter 32 to 16 chris paul carved them up again Chris Paul is having some monster assist games lately. He had uh, 15 assists in 35 minutes. And you know, we'll end up seeing what happens with the, the Bulls once they get marketing back. That really is kind of the last piece. Luke Cornett has superseded Daniel Gafford in the lo- rotation. And he scored more points in 12 minutes in that Phoenix game than he had scored the entire season before that. Actually uh, hit a three, also had three block shots. That was kind of the idea when they signed her that two-year deal was this guy can block shots and hit some threes even if he is relatively immobile but he he had his best game of the season uh in uh his 12 minutes of backup center play and so we'll uh talk more about the bulls with pincus here at the end let's move to cleveland danny yeah, it's been a rough stretch overall for the Cavs. Um, they're 13 and 21 on the season, three and three since the last 15 and 60, 29th in net rating, negative 8.3, dead last in offense, 24th in defense. Remember when they were top 10? And 538 projects that they will finish 14th in the East, 24 wins, and their playoff odds are vanishingly small. And really, the reason I said it's been a rough stretch is that while they've bounced back from it partially, they had a horrendous 10 game losing streak, which they snapped in that game that you and I talked about on a on the gamer pod that we did where they had that comeback that, that insane comeback win over the Hawks where the Hawks blew that last possession but they also had an overtime win over the Sixers on Saturday a game that Torian Prince missed due to personal reasons, though he's dealing with an ankle thing. Del Vadova's still out. Jetty Osman missed it due to back spasms. And Kevin Love, while it sounds like he's close, he still has not yet returned. Yeah, I mean, he, Woj tweeted that he was like expected to come back like two weeks ago at, at this point, and clearly he is uh, having trouble working it his way back in. And yeah, it was a, a crazy game where the Sixers outscored, or, or Cleveland outscored the Sixers 20-17 to 17 in overtime, but it was an absolute rock fight uh, before that. Uh, and Sexton and Garland did a lot uh, in that game, but obviously it was uh, not the most efficient game for either. But uh, what did you see uh, in this one? I know you watched some uh, of this one. I, I did not see that one somewhat, thankfully. Yeah, it it was it was a real rock fight from in, in like in the it was a non modern game is the way I would describe it. So the teams combined for fifty two three point attempts in an overtime game, which was a little bit crazy. Yeah. And both teams shot fifty percent or worse on twos. 
And so for for Cleveland, I thought that they really did win this game on the defensive end. They forced 18 turnovers. 11 of them were live ball, and that fueled their fast break where, not surprisingly, the Cavs are significantly better in transition with Sexton and Garland than they are in any of the circumstances. That was also a big part of their overtime success. Also worth noting, that was it was 20 to 17 overtime, but that last one was a Ben Simmons three. Um, and and in terms of like kind of how Cleveland did it, I thought some of it was good fortune, but they also were doing a more aggressive job. We've talked about the Cavs, you know, having traditional centers of trying to lower the amount of attempts at the rim. Philly didn't get to the line an absolute ton, and instead they were taking they were taking shots from a little bit further away. And I think the Sixers will do better on mid rangers and do better on floaters in the Dins game. I didn't think they were insanely well contested, but if you just get shots away from the basket and you're not conceding fouls or anything like that, it makes life harder. And the Sixers, you know, they weren't making threes. Nobody was making threes. Yeah, and uh, the Sixers somehow allowed Dylan Windler, Colin Sexton, and Darius Garland to combine for eight steals. Yeah. The the turnovers were a, a big problem. And yeah, Joel Embiid was awesome uh, with the, his post-up game with 42 points. Uh, and Simmons did well also. But other than that, uh, the Sixers really struggled. Seth Curry was uh, one out of 13. Uh, and got to like that you've been seeing from Isaac Okoro uh, of late. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, so Okoro, he... He had that nice defensive performance against Trey in the game this week that we talked about. Um, but going back to when you and I scouted Okoro and did the draft profile, one of our biggest questions was, can he shoot well enough? And early on, the returns were really bad. I mean, and when you can have somebody who Okoro is currently sitting at 12% usage, if you can't or won't shoot, that's a huge problem. And he's 11 of 23 in the Cavs' last five games. And so that pushes him to 31% overall. I care significantly more about the 31% overall than I do about him shooting 50% during the stretch. Because remember, the whole thing matters unless you're looking at it, but the whole thing is getting a little better. I think it was like 24, 25% at one point during the year. And I... I think the number, the target number for Okoro, like even if he's very good defensively, still probably really think it has to be like 34 to 36% to be if he's going to be like, that's all he's going to do offensively. And I think he can do more with the ball in his hands. That was something we saw at Auburn. Yeah. I mean, you know, is he going to be running pick and roll? Like probably not, but he, he can drive in for uh, well, some two, two dribbles and a good decision. Stuff. I think he'll be able to do that if teams ever have to close out on it. So last thing uh, on the Cavs, I mentioned that post-up stat with Thaddeus Young. The Cavaliers Center's post-ups, um, J.B. Bickerstaff has been giving them just a little bit too much room to explore the studio space. I would say these numbers are comically bad. JaVale McGee has 61 post-touches. He is 8 out of 28 shooting the ball on those post-touches. That is the lowest field goal percentage in the NBA. He only has 3 assists out of the post uh, on 61 post-touches and 6 turnovers, which is a, a pretty high number actually a lot of turnovers in the post happen just trying to get it in there but this is just once you've actually gotten the ball uh but eight out of 28 that is by far the lowest field goal percentage in the nba on shots out of the post and andre drummond who is not playing for them now but did for a while he was among the lowest guys uh he was actually 42 out of 103 shots out of the post that's a lot of shots and also had 20 turnovers and just 10 assists. So yeah, the uh, the post-ups, probably, probably got to go. 
Well, Let's talk about the Pistons. Yeah, I, I was going to say, Andre Drummond's former team, the Pistons, 9-24, and 1-5 since the last 15-60, including a rough loss at the hands of the New York Knickerbockers on Sunday. They're 25th in net rating, negative 4.7, 25th in offense, 17th in defense, and 538 projects them to finish last in the Eastern Conference with 23 wins. They are not going to make the playoffs, despite having a very manageable schedule the rest of the way, really low strength of schedule, rest advantage over their opponents. Uh, Kevin Pelton had this piece earlier in the week once they announced the second half schedule going through strength of schedule using his his evaluation which included like the home court advantage and rest advantage and everything else and he thought the Pistons had the fourth easiest schedule but when you're 9 and 24 it's hard to make your way back yeah so I uh, hooked myself up to that machine from Clockwork Orange that just holds your eyes open and watched Pistons and Knicks today so we we can we'll use this as a vehicle to talk about the Knicks uh, as well uh Dennis Smith Jr. had a pretty good game on i think it was friday it was uh number one play on sports center at a huge dunk coming down the lane and uh, as we know uh the ability to have awesome dunks is basically you know probably 75 percent of our evaluation of a player uh but it, he really struggled again as a starter against his former team the knicks with three out of 11 did hit one three-pointer when the defense went, went under uh but the big problem especially against a, a good rim protecting team like the knicks was that when he did get to the basket he really was just kind of throwing himself into bodies throwing shots up you know that that didn't look that good he has actually been getting a lot of steals uh, and blocks uh, so far uh i think he has eight blocks and like you know under 200 minutes uh, as a piston which is actually pretty good uh for a point guard uh let's see what else i got here well here i have i have a big kind of a big picture thing about this game i I was it was my it was my secondary during this time because i I watched the knicks in their win yesterday so or or, on sorry on saturday um so i didn't necessarily need to watch them again but the idea of sealing off the rim and contesting everything there and then being willing to sacrifice threes is better against the pistons than damn near every team in the nba so they were giving up they were giving up shots and yeah i mean ellington hit hit him but everybody else was just bricking left and right for pistons yeah and the pistons only had 37 points in the first half and and that largely it was an 11 point game then new york really turned it on in the third and it was relative garbage time in the fourth one thing that i did like from the pistons is what i saw from isaiah stewart i had talked about how some of his numbers in terms of defensive field goal percentage at the rim allowing fewer shots at the rim and just the pistons on off numbers defensively with him on the floor were really good so i wanted to lock in on his defense uh, and uh, he in his 28 minutes he was neutral in a game that the pistons lost uh, by 19 points and I think he does actually have a pretty good acumen for defending in the pick and roll. He had it two plays where he was stuck in a two-on-one situation and the Knicks threw alley-oops and he was able to break up both of those passes. Uh, I think he's pretty decent at that cat and mouse game. He just has a, a lot of activity as well. His feet are relatively quick. You know, I'd like to see what he looks like defending in an isolation. You know, that wasn't something that they've really asked him to do at all to switch. But I think he's got a pretty good understanding of how to make the ball handler at least a, a little bit wary but also not let guys get behind him uh, for dunks or, or alley-oops and really liked his pick and roll defense uh, in this game uh, obviously he runs the floor really hard he's a good rebounder uh, on both ends i uh, did have two blocks uh, and a steal in this game as well but uh, the one thing that he's not really great at is he's not really a I think going to be a really good pick and roll finisher. Like there was one play where he got the ball with a nice little runway to attack. And yeah, the Knicks had Nerlens Noel back there and Nerlens only was credited with three blocks 
uh, but he changed a ton more shots uh, around the rim as well. And he also had three steals in this one in 40 minutes after 41 minutes the, the other night with all the Knicks centers out. Uh, however, yeah, Stewart tried to go up and, you know, he just had to like jump as high as he could and then just like float it up over. So like he's not going to come down and, and crush a dunk on you in pick and roll. So I, I think he's got to get a little bit more of a place to be offensively, like other than just like hard rim runs for post up and offensive rebounds. But he's very, he reminds me a lot of Tristan Thompson. kind of similar level of athleticism you know not a nuclear athlete i want to see whether his feet are as quick as a young tristan but as a rebounder he's kind of in the same sort of class and he may actually be a little bit better of a rim protector than tristan so i I think he's going to be an effective player in the league for a long time i don't know if he's going to be a starter necessarily but i think his limitations are really more on offense than defense i think he can be effective defensively based on what i saw tonight which again the knicks are not a great offensive team so i may feel differently if i see him against somebody else one other thing it struck me during the game so i looked it up detroit's half court offensive rating oh god 82 per 100 possessions that's just in this game or overall in this game (laughs) i mean it feels like it's that overall but uh, i'll look i'll look that up while you talk yeah, well, and I, I noted that when Detroit had a decent moments in the first quarter, a lot of it was in transition, hit-ahead passes from Smith, Jeremy Grant running the, the lanes, Plumley running the lanes, and when they couldn't get into transition, I mean, they were playing late in the clock. They started Svee Mikhailiuk because Wayne Ellington had kind of slumped, and obviously you're looking for any excuse to play the young guy in this situation, but Svee was 0 for 3, and Wayne Ellington was 4 of 6 from 3. He was one of the few bright spots. That was part of why the Pistons' second unit looked a little bit better they actually go to a five-man bench group Saban Lee uh, who was their second round draft pick not a guy who's really looking to take the threes kind of like a backup point guard energy it's kind of like an ish smith type i would say i mean we didn't even really i didn't watch all of garbage time but he does push the ball really hard in transition he does play hard he tries to stay attached to his man pretty well uh let's turn wait, out wait to before the next, before we do yeah, detroit's yeah. Oh, you, oh, you got detroit's it? full yeah. season half court offensive rating 91.6 27th in the league cleveland is last at 87 <sighs> yeah that's not too good uh so it, the knicks really Really didn't do much better in the first half they just happened to go eight out of 16 from three and were uh 13 out of 26 for the game the pistons were nine out of 32 28 percent the uh, jedi three-point defense continues for the knicks although i will say certainly they were not giving up particularly good looks sadiq bay uh, had some uh, that didn't go in he was three out of 12 he struggled a little bit but mentioned nerland's looking pretty good he was plus 13 had to play 40 minutes and on a back-to-back he played 41 minutes in their win over what was that the Pacers, on Pacers. yeah yeah and then 40 in this one they only have one center they, they did go with well Obi Toppin at center just a little bit yeah what you're gonna say I mean so I get playing Nerlens. I mean he was he was important extremely important in their win over the over the Pacers on on Sunday but Nerlens Noel came back in the game today with eight minutes and 43 seconds left and the Knicks up 22 points. Like, yeah, it, it's a Pistons game. You can say eight and 43 to play since uh, <laughs> J- J- George Blah is involved. Well, and like, I mean, the Pistons, I mean, yes, New Orleans Noel being on defense helped with that. The Pistons aren't going to score 20 points in eight minutes and 43 seconds, even if Obi Toppin is at center. Like, they're, they're not going to do that. Like, it, it's at a certain point, you got to do your players a little bit of favors. But I thought one of the real bright spots for the, for the Knicks, not only in this game, but in, in the Pacers win, was R.J. Barrett. He had two nice performances, 
24 and 21 on consecutive nights making the three ball i'm not willing i'm not going to say like he's yeah. going to make the three forever he's a- it, at least uh, yeah the spot up actually looks good i mean the yes. two that he made he was two out of four both of those were nice in rhythm left corner threes yeah and so right now rj 47 percent on threes in the month of february 34 percent overall for the season so that's that's obviously much better remember he missed basically every one for the first month of the season so doing a yeah, lot better he shoots there. it well in this building too it, with opening night i think he was three of three for from downtown if memory serves yeah so i, I thought i thought and he anything. had some nice attacks at the rim had a couple of good defensive possessions as well we, you and i both liked rj's defensive rebounding or his rebounding period um anything else from oh and also the knicks are starting derrick rose because alfred payton is dealing with a hamstring issue he is out indefinitely as of now we we haven't i I would assume he'll be out at least until the all-star break also of note the knicks have the second hardest second half schedule per kevin pelton's metric uh they're the only team in the east with the top with a top four schedule difficulty and orlando is the only other east team with one of the top seven most difficult continue to be impressed by julius randall and what's made such a difference for him is just that his jump shot is such a viable weapon yeah. this year. Three out of six from three in this game. But moreover, they put Mason Plumley on him to guard him with the center and they put Grant on Nerland's Noel and Randall was able to beat him just by shooting over the top, getting into the lane, short jump shots, free throw line jump shots off the drill. I mean, that's the expansion of his game that, I mean, how nice would that have been last year when he had to pull his way into a bunch of people? And finally, it looks like the jump shot has really come around for Randall. That one year in New Orleans, he was starting to hit a few more. You didn't feel like this was a great shot for him, but I, I'm a believer. I think he's going to be at least, a, this is maybe a little fluky that, I mean, he's been around 40% at times this year that he's going to be at that level but i think he's going to be a threat from the outside for the rest of his career and that really changes things so much uh, for him to be able to score in an isolation without having to get all the way to the rim that's what he was really missing you know he's even got like right shoulder turnaround fadeaways out of the post which wasn't something he had and it, back when he was a prospect people were like oh this guy's like too in love with the jump shot and that never really was the case that he was able to make those shots in his career but now uh, you're seeing that i mean it's a kind of an important thing to remember that hey if the guy shows that a little bit of that skill when he's at the lower levels yeah maybe it's not gonna be viable right away but there's some talent there that uh randall deserves a ton of credit for finally honing into uh being the this threat now in isolation he absolutely does and the last week has also been the triumphant return of frank nilkina to the rotation due to partially the all the absences that they have in the backcourt nilkina has played about 50 minutes this week which is more than he played the entire season before that had a couple of big defensive possessions in the game against the Pacers and yeah just good to see him out there I I don't think the Knicks are going to make him a qualifying offer but I continue to like Frank Smokes. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing Uh, (laughs) that's definitely not a problem Uh, Reese's you did it you stumped this charming devil the Pacers are 15 and 17, struggling one and four since the last 15 and 60. They still do have a positive net rating in their 12th, 0.4, 17th on offense, 10th on defense. That's, you know, relatively close to where they were last year. If memory serves, they were 20th on offense, 6th on defense. A year ago, they project for the seventh seed with 34 wins, 63% chance of the playoffs. Raptor, Elo, about the same, 59 
percent. Demontis Sabonis did make the all-star team as an injury replacement over four guys that are way better players than him. And you know, one of the big arguments was, oh, he's on the you know his team is the four seed, like they need a representative. Uh, well, they've lost two straight, and they're now actually not in playoff position. Oh, we, we should <laughs> we sh- we should have mentioned. I apologize for forgetting this. The Knicks currently have the fourth best record in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, it is quite the morass there, though, right around five hundred in the East, and, and we'll see whether uh, some separation can occur. Uh, but if you're looking at that race going forward here for the Pacers, uh, there are some reasons uh, for pessimism. Yeah, the schedule is not their friend, and part of this is just making up games and everything else and happenstance. But there's a, a really nice tool on on positive residual like basically going through the calendar for the rest of the season and one of the things it tracks is something that I've done manually for for years for, with specific teams which is games that a team has a rest advantage and disadvantage and for the rest of the season Indiana only has a rest advantage on their opponent 3 times and they're at a disadvantage in terms of rest 10 times. That negative seven rest differential is the worst in like the toughest in the league by far for the remaining season. OKC and New Orleans, by comparison, have a negative four differential and almost everybody else is even or better just because you think about that generally works itself out. So that will be a real challenge and something that uh, Pelton talked a little bit about in his in his write up was that, you know, like with home court being muted, rest you know, beyond all the injury and health stuff that we can't really predict, rest is a very bit will be a very big differentiator. So that is a real challenge for the Pacers moving forward. That might be part of why I don't know how 538's model considers that they're projected to finish seventh in their model, uh, about a 60% chance of making the playoffs. Well, and I'm not sure if that model notes that TJ Warren is still going to be out for a long time. Scott Agnes tweeted that Warren is months away. He's still in a walking boot. And I apologize that we did not get deeply enough into this at the time time because i was like wow that's a long time for a foot fracture did he have an navicular fracture and i went back and looked at it and yes he did it was a navicular fracture we probably should have been highlighting that a little bit more he had surgery to repair that left navicular stress fracture and as you'll remember of course from bill walton and joel Embiid and, and all, all these other guys that is just an area that has very very little blood flow and it has to be you know this, as mentioned he's in a walking boot so i mean it has to really be stabilized for a long time it just takes a very very long time to heal and so one would think that his season is in jeopardy we've really only got two and a half more months of this season and they're not going to want to mess around with that obviously um so they desperately need him and his scoring you know they don't other than justin holiday they don't really have anyone who defends well on the perimeter jeremy lamb is someone who they've had to be careful about spotting even though he's shooting the piss out of the ball from three if you get him against a team like golden state where he's going to get back cut a lot or an individual matchup that's going to be a problem uh, that's gonna be difficult and it was always the case for him but particularly now that he's coming off the acl generally i think guys are worse on defense coming back uh because or, you know you can shoot the ball but you can't really play defense until you actually get back in it during your injury um the good in- rehab the good injury news for the pacers is that carousel vert sounds like he'll be back in march jay michaels talked about that a, a little bit so hopefully not too long after the all-star break and also i thought they really missed malcolm brogdon on saturday in that aforementioned game against the knicks brogdon not being there along with some of their other absences meant that the knicks were able to key a lot more on sabonis and sabonis did make some nice passes out of that but he also turned the ball over five times and tj mcconnell played 46 minutes in that game sometimes alongside aaron holiday because their guard rotation is just so thin sumner had a nice dunk but it was it 
it just it, I think the the like the cascading effect of injuries I thought was was really on display for them and that one though the Knicks played well of course I don't want to discount that yeah I mean they just are very very low on guys who can dribble as indicated by the fact that they had to play McConnell 46 minutes I mean you would think maybe they could have got Lamb and Holiday a few more minutes but Holiday was two out of ten in 19 minutes so he really struggled in that one uh, I did watch their game against the Warriors last week uh, as well and I was struck again on how matchup dependent Sabonis was. He had, I think, 15 of, I want to say, his 22 points in the second quarter. And most of that in the first six minutes of the second quarter when uh, he was able to get going and pick and roll and in the post against James Wiseman and Kevon Looney. And so he was able to score and pick and roll against Wiseman. He's able to score in the post against Looney. who's not strong enough to hold up to him. He could just kind of put him in the goal. He had a nice righty hook shot uh, as well. As mentioned, he is trying to go left shoulder a little bit more to diversify his game but then when you put some, like OG Ananobi was on him in a, in a the game against Toronto uh Draymond Green even Eric Pascal, like when Sabonis is up against a guy who's a little bit stronger that he can't just like back him down and put him in the goal then he's really going to struggle and he did down the end of that game uh, against the Warriors uh, as the Pacers themselves really struggled to score but they got it I mean obviously getting Brogdon back is going to be critical here uh and they've got to just get more guys who can dribble and Levert is going to really really help them it, in that regard I, I think just to and have someone who can soak up a few possessions these guys really struggle late in the clock as well Brogdon is more of just an opportunity penetrator than someone who can put you in the mix and like get a shot off at the end I mean they, they don't really have anyone on that team like Holiday would probably be the best guy who's available right now in that role and so it's uh it, it's gonna be interesting here with this difficult schedule hopefully getting Levert back and a little better health from Brogdon and some of these support guys can, can help but it doesn't seem like warren is going to be uh riding to their rescue well, anytime soon here and then the other big potential ripple effect for the pacers of the last couple weeks is that as they've fallen off a little bit and the the heat and raptors have righted the ship is that it looks like there are six teams that are both you know like better records than them now and better teams you know assuming tj warren is out for for a while and so you know that, that the the seven seed isn't the worst place to be but it's it is looking like that is more likely a lot more well, if they, if they got to play the Nets, uh, yeah, I would. <laughs> well, it might be the worst. Oh, and if or if they have if they have to play the Bucks too, like the Bucks just kill the Pacers. Like that matchup, the the Bucks have always just like completely dominated. I can't remember the Pacers playing them close once in the last couple of years. Let's jump to the Miami Heat. The Heat are sixteen and seventeen. Actually, this was compiled before they beat the before the Hawks game was processed. But still, let's count it: five and two yeah. since the last so, fifteen. So they're actually a game better than the Pacers now when uh, the Pacers' superior record was the the justification for putting Demonis Sabonis in over Butler and Bam. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, net rating the Heat are 21st negative. Oh, oh we should mention this too, actually, on the Pacers sure. before we go. Uh, the Pacers are going to owe Demonis Sabonis uh, a $1.5 million bonus. Yes. Now, because. Uh, uh, you mean a $1.5 million sub bonus? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's so good. Uh, okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the Heat are 17 and 17. They're, they're 17 and 17. Uh, net rating 21st, 23rd in offense, but back up to 9th in defense. 538's model, the Raptor model projects that they'll finish 6th in the East with 39 wins, but it's all really, really close in that in that kind of range. Uh, 92% chance of making the playoffs. ELO is 87%. Remember, like, how far down they were back when they were in the bottom, you know, bottom 5 in net rating and all that. And part of the reason why is because they have the second easiest second half schedule per 
Kevin Pelton's metric. And it's also good news that Miami got Tyler Hero back. He had missed three games due to a right hip contusion and then was questionable for Sunday, but played and contributed to their win. Yeah, nice win over the Jazz, 124-116. And Jimmy Butler had quite the game. It was a, a duel between him and Donovan Mitchell through the first 30 minutes or so of the game. And then both of them then went quiet, but Butler was able to attack down the stretch. Mitchell was less effective. He finished 11 out of 26, but Butler 33 points, eight assists, 10 rebounds, four offensive rebounds, nine of 11 from the foul line. And I, he was 0 for 3, but I like that he's at least taking open threes when the ball comes to him. And he had the mid-ranger working a little bit. He exposed that jazz weakness of just not being able to guard physical wings who want to shoot jump shots. Not that Butler always wants to shoot jump shots, but he's able to kind of go through guys, get fouled. Like I, Jimmy Butler does try to flop and draw fouls, but he does it in a way that's less annoying to me than some because what he does is he'll start his drive, and if he senses that the player guarding him is not in legal guarding position he doesn't need for the guy to put his forearm on him to feel contact and throw something up he just basically attacks the shoulder of the guy who's moving and isn't in his path he'll just go he's so physically just goes right through the shoulder of that guy who is not in front of him that is not legal guarding position and most more players should do that like just uh, Harden does that a little bit too uh particularly against smaller guys but that's how he was able to get to the line so much in this game and a, a lot of games frankly uh, uh, well, and he was awesome in this one he was and i thought an important takeaway both for butler and for the heat for the for the jazz was one of the real danger spots for utah is a player who can create advantages one-on-one who is not intending to get all the way to the basket because then gobert just isn't yeah. as much of a threat and so there were a couple possessions where miami got mike conley on on jimmy butler and it was going to be a look or a foul and so he got some big free throws late to basically ice the win yeah now the heat were four 14 of 30 from three and the jazz were 15 of 46 but i did note again that the jazz were not getting as many spot up attempts as they would like it was a lot more off the dribble stuff some of the, some of their best guys were taking that take more off the dribble shots like conley and mitchell were combined four out of 16 from three clarkson was three out of 12 you know they would rather that it, it be some of the some of the other guys spotting up uh, getting a few more of the attempts uh, but I mean, this game was just great theater. I really enjoyed it. Extremely high level of game between both teams. You know, again, that heat question of who the four man is going to be. It was Kelly Olenek in this game for a lot until he fouled out. They tried to play him as the center on the second unit at the start of the second and fourth to <clears throat> stretch out Gobert a little bit to some mixed results. And then they went with Andre Iguodala to close it out at the four. But again, they're, this these guys are not going to really hum until they find someone who can shoot it the way Jay Crowder did. Goran Dragic is back from that ankle. He looked really good in this game with 26 points. Uh, I was impressed by that. Uh, Bam Adebayo versus Rudy Gobert was fantastic theater in this one, I, I thought. Yeah, I, I thought that it was as well. And Gobert was was doing such a good job deterring shots around the rim. But at, at times, like, you know, Bam was trying to get shots in other places. I thought that when he tried around the basket against Gobert, it failed. When he tried around the basket against Derek Favors, worked a lot better. Um, But some of the getting... Yeah, get I mean, there was one play where, like, Bam was just pump faking like crazy. And then Rudy Gobert still, like, spiked his shit uh, into the seat 
seats um he, he definitely was was causing problems for bam uh when he tried to go at him yeah which is i mean there's not there's not many guys in the nba who can do that against bam out of bio very true um th- kendrick nunn is playing pretty well for these guys too yeah kendrick nunn had a had a big game against the hawks 24 points and that go comes on top of his uh he, uh, his 12 but it was on five and nine for shooting in the previous game yeah com- coming on hitting some threes and when goran dragic is playing and playing well there is less for none to do but i actually think that can sometimes help him just because he can go into more of a supporting role like it was a real godsend for them when none was so good at the start of last season when jimmy butler was out but i think this is more of a role that none is comfortable in and another important point just to mention briefly one of the guys that the heat signed to be a possibility at the four mo harkless he's only played one game in 13 minutes in the last month he played briefly against the clippers but other than that he hasn't played since january 23rd yeah i wasn't expecting it to be that much of a fall off from him and they went back to precious a a little bit more tonight against the hawks and gabe vincent is, has found at least a small role off the bench as a shooter and intense defender still not seeing a ton from casey akpala in some of his spot minutes i don't think he's really an answer for them as a rotation player right now the last thing about this game it was just the last three minutes was played at an incredible intensity level i mean it was just you had to be an absolute man out there to get a rebound like these guys like especially there are a bunch of loose rebounds that just kind of went out towards the dotted line and there's like three or four incredible athletes like jumping as high as they could to get it and fighting for the ball i really just enjoyed every second of of that game and the high intensity level let's turn to the 21 and 13 milwaukee bucks they lost five straight and then they won five straight and now they are uh looking good again second in the nba net rating 7.5 third on offense 119.2 they're kind of clustered around the same the them the the nets and the clippers are all kind of clustered around in the same area uh increasing on defense uh, up to 11th i thought that they had a very encouraging game which we'll talk about today against the clippers drew holiday was back uh, as well the bucks project for 47 wins which would be first in the east and over 99 percent chance of making the playoffs in both projection systems you got anything on these guys or should we just get right into this game against the clippers uh just briefly on the the 10 games that drew holiday missed due to covid the bucks went five and five they were they had a positive net rating they were, i'm impressed that they were ninth in offense i mean you think about just they had they had other creators but they were also dealing for part of that time with dj augustine he was out dealing with a personal family issue he didn't play in the win over the Pels. Yeah, he, I think it sounded like he had a kid actually. Oh, that's oh, what, great. Uh, okay. That that's what my, Mike Budenholzer was <laughs> alluding to it being a, a positive reason for Good. his absence. Um, I, I would guess that's what And it was. so that led to the Bucks playing this ridiculous lineup in the win against the Pels. The starting lineup was DiVincenzo, Middleton, Giannis, Portis, and Brook Lopez. Um just going super size because they just didn't have that many guards. And I think Budenholzer probably didn't want to shift the guard rotation too dramatically, kept Bryn Forbes and some of the other guys on. But yeah, let's focus on that Clippers game which the Bucks ended up winning 105 to 100 yeah and my number one takeaway was that Giannis Antetokounmpo was playing at that defensive player of the year level in the fourth quarter he played 40 minutes in this one too like it's it's certainly interesting he clearly has wanted to play more minutes 
Uh, he was able to be effective down the end. Uh, I'm hopeful that he's not going to wear down because he is so reliant on uh, his intensity level. But considering how many games they are playing this year and that he's playing way more minutes, you know, that'll be something to keep an eye on. But uh, he, he, him playing that many minutes basically ended up winning them this game. The Clippers were largely in control and then failed to score for the last four minutes of the game. The Bucks weren't amazing offensively either, uh, but Giannis had a couple of huge plays at the rim he stopped paul george with an incredible block where paul george is going a million miles an hour jumped into his chest and it's so hard if you're getting hit in the chest knocked backwards actually still blocked the shot which he did uh he had a massive block on a zubats dunk attempt uh, as well he had three blocks right at the rim all of them of the highlight variety in the fourth uh he had a block from behind on Kawhi when Kawhi was trying to work a, on an isolation and I don't know. I, I got a bunch on oh. this game, but anything really stick out to you about uh, yes. this one? Um, some was Mike Budenholzer making a decision somewhat per- similar to Alvin Gentry a few years ago of putting Drew Holiday on Kawhi Leonard, you know, putting Drew on the other team's best wing scorer, basically not trusting anybody else. And, you know, like I, some of that is just when you think about the specific bucks, they're a wonderful defensive team, but they do have these specific limitations. Yeah, they do. And they did go to a switching group with Giannis at center. They took Brooke Lopez out of the game. They went with Pat Connaughton instead. That was after the Clippers decided to go with Marcus Morris at center and they think they felt like they needed to switch it and they were able to defend out of that group and Kawhi did have like a personal run where he set up a, a three and had a couple of buckets on them at the expense of Drew in the middle part of the period after he came back in uh, but they were able to hold them down they really did not get very many looks down the end uh, DJ Augustine when he was in before they took him out to really match up towards the end hit a big three off the dribble which is something that they obviously need when they, they went under on him uh, using Giannis as the role man is continuing to pay dividends. And Chris Middleton had just two unbelievable passes, or actually, I would say three, all of them to Giannis in this game. One was a nice little play as the role man, and then he had two sideline out of bounds where just standing there they ran a pick play where Zubac was on Giannis and Zubac's a little bit too slow to deal uh, with Giannis they had a guard set a back screen and Middleton just threw it three inches over Zubac who has a huge standing reach outstretched arm to an alley-oop off a sideline out of bounds against the other team's center that was awesome and then he had another play where they tried to set a screen for Giannis a smaller player switched onto him on a sideline out of bounds and then he just lobbed it right over the top to him to get it to Giannis right at the rim uh, on that one so a great passing fourth quarter from chris middleton anything else on this one or do you want to move on um yeah i think just the the end of game offense looked a little bit better they also had they called timeout to set this up after the clippers had failed to score bucks were up by one and there was about a nine second differential they got into their set really early to get Giannis at the elbow but then they got a quick back door for holiday holiday then passed it around and then they were able to get Giannis driving in unguarded from the three-point line after they passed it around for the dunk that put him up three and then clippers got a chance at the tying three with Kawhi getting a, a decent look but he, he was well pressured and they missed that got the rebound and uh, that was it so uh Milton hit a couple of free throws to put him up five uh, and end it so this was it the Clippers have not been a good clutch team uh, this season but this was a, a good win for the Bucks. they're able to defend the Clippers pretty well down the end without going to that Brooke Lopez drop coverage style they had Brooke Lopez out on the floor more even when he was out there 
defensively against Paul George, for example. And they were able to get Giannis involved, but not him going to the isolation game. They didn't really do that at all in the last five minutes. So this is a positive step forward for the Bucks. Yeah, it absolutely was. We can jump to the Orlando Magic. The Magic are now 13 and 21, 3 and 3 since the last 15 and 60. And despite that record, their playoff odds have been dropping like a stone. Part of that is because they are 28th in net rating, negative 6.5, 29th in offense, 16th in defense. 530 now projects them to win 27 games, which would be 13th in the East. Their playoff odds are less than 10% in both models. And James Ennis missed Saturday due to a sore left calf. You're the calf. There we go. Um, And so something that struck me when I've been watching the magic and it really is a shame that i mean beyond the two young players who were out for the whole year like they've they've looked a lot more capable especially on offense when evan fournier has been available and it's been this really weird year for fournier because played in five games then he sat for nine then he played in nine games then he sat for five and now he's played for another six like it's been really on and off due to this back issue that he's been dealing with but when he's been on the floor i think fournier has been very good um unsurprisingly fournier has to play a larger role in the magic offense with so many guys out you know you could think about normally that would be Marco Fultz and Cole Anthony would be taking more of it but so Fournier's had to pass more he's had to run the show more and he's been efficient as an individual scorer and overall like their offense has been pretty fine when he's when he's been on the floor 112.5 when you consider their surrounding talent though he plays a lot with Fooch who's of course a, a wonderful offensive player and that drops precipitously when Fournier is off the floor. But there is a lot of shooting luck in that number because the Magic, and when you think about the players, they're shooting 42.6% from three when Fournier is on the when Fournier is on the court. Yeah, I'm starting to think that uh, obviously it depends what the price is, but Fournier to the Boston Celtics into their trade exception, the Celtics might need to send a little bit back because they are hard cap. I have to look at exactly what that is. For a future first round pick, to me, makes a lot of sense. I think Fournier as like a Gordon Hayward light type of player for the Celtics would just be exactly what they need. Just another guy who can make some decisions. He's a good passer and connector. He's acceptable defensively. Doesn't have quite the size of Hayward and can hit shots off the ball. He can drive, play a little pick and roll as well. Like he would just be precisely to me what the the Celtics need. Although there's a lot of teams obviously that could use someone like him. But the problem in the playoffs has been that he's been asked to do too much as he has had to on this team well and it's overall it's going to be such a challenge for jeff weltman to figure out what fournier's trade value is because while he has played well when available and fits a lot of places you know there actually aren't that many capable shooting guards that are truly available and it's a position with kind of scarcity in a different way and fournier's contract isn't bad and it's expiring after this year but the back issues and the lack of clear clear buyers that also have the capacity to like either the capacity to take on a contract like this like you talked about with the Celtics or you know matching salary that is tolerable for the Orlando Magic like it's it's going to be very difficult I still think Orlando should do it just because they're remember how their books look that they're because of these extensions and everything they basically can't sign Fournier and stay under the tax though they could theoretically move someone else but there isn't really a clear one unless they did something with Vooch but why are you going to trade Vooch and then re-sign Fournier so I, I, I 
think and I hope that he will be playing elsewhere. I don't know where it will be, and I have zero idea what it's going to cost that team. Yeah, it would seem like certainly a late first-round pick at a minimum it would be, you know, if you look at what the price was for Marcus Morris last year. I would, I would say that Morris and Fournier are having somewhat similar types of season. So maybe you'd say Morris plays a little bit more valuable of a position. He's got a little bit more size, but kind of similar to that. And so, no, two first-round picks, that seems like a, a lot yeah, is there. I think where the Celtics can maybe be more attractive is just that they don't need to send back as much salary and you know maybe one of their their young guys could be in this deal uh, as well potentially but there will be plenty of suitors for Fournier uh Nikola Vucevic I mentioned these post-up touches. Joel Embiid is number one in the NBA with 380. Vooch is second in the NBA, 359 post-touches. And he's shooting 49% on post-up, 65 out of 132. So out of his post-touches, he really only shoots uh, about 40% of the time or so, though he also uh, will draw a free throw very occasionally. He's only drawn 18 free throw attempts, so basically gotten fouled nine times on his 359 post touches that is incredible to shoot 132 times on post-ups which are supposed to be like power plays where you're close to the basket uh and only draw a foul about nine times but Vooch also leads the nba with 39 assists stemming from post touches that is actually one more than Nikola Jokic, but he only has 14 turnovers out of the post uh, as well not all of those obviously come uh, attempting on passes that's a pretty good ratio uh Jokic has 38 assists out of the post but he has 22 turnovers to Vooch's 14 in those situations so getting the ball to the post to Vooch for a team like this that's so limited offensively uh, certainly has been effective on a relative scale let's uh, move on to the Sixers Philadelphia 76ers are 22 and 12 on the season four and three since the last 15 and 60 eighth in net rating plus 2.4 15th in offense solid sixth in defense 110.2 i believe there are a lot of teams right in that vicinity 538 projects them to tie with the nets for the second seed with 45 wins they're going to make the playoffs and tobias harris um missed that loss against the Cavs on saturday due to a right knee contusion fortunately no structural damage per the mri and interestingly daryl murray made the decision to send isaiah joe to the g league bubble on sunday seems a little late for that we're getting towards the end of the bubble but I mean, hey, if you can get him some minutes, now that the Sixers are healthier, there isn't really as much of a clear place for Isaiah Joe in the rotations. Maybe get him some more minutes for like a week or something. I think that's fine. Yeah, and let's talk about this report here from Keith Poppy that Kyle Lowry would like to join the Sixers. And what's more, that the Raptors might be willing to trade him to a preferred destination if they get something of value in return, according to sources. Uh, and Pompey goes on to say that a league source says the Raptors want to reward Lowry for his years of service by helping him secure an opportunity to win another NBA title. And so that's uh, maybe actually here. Why don't we table this for now? We can when we move into talking about the Raptors, we can start. Yeah, because I, th- I think this is what, a, what a very a very Raptorsy discussion. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it is. But uh, one thing that got a lot of press was Ben Simmons' defense on Luka Doncic in their game against the Mavs. Kristaps uh, Porzingis did not play in that game, which I thought was a big deal. They actually started Boban in that one, and Boban is for what his strengths are being a pick and roll partner for Luka Doncic is not necessarily one of them Simmons did have the initial assignment on Doncic and obviously 
with other perimeter players the Sixers are going to switch that they switched Tobias Harris onto Doncic when that guy screened for him they switched Danny Green onto him when that guy screened for him Harris by the way suffered what was it a knee contusion and that's why he missed yeah uh, the Cleveland game but what stuck out to me with Simmons guarding Luca is Luca did not really try to ISO him at all he certainly went to that step back quite a bit against some of the other guys but Simmons just did a great job of getting over screens getting into Luca's body without fouling uh eating up the space between them the Mavs screen setters probably could have done a, a better job frankly uh but then when Simmons would get screened off he's so fast in a straight line that he's able to eat up that space between himself and the ball handler going back towards the basket and get back connected with the guy extremely quickly and when you have Joel Embiid waiting under the rim, uh, who is still one of the best intimidators in the NBA, I mean, guys just do not challenge Joel Embiid hardly at all. Uh, and then you've got Ben Simmons on his back. And he's able to do that without following. He does a great job of showing his hands in that situation. That made life difficult for Doncic in the mid-range. Doncic likes to kind of take it slow, work into the, the mid-range, shoot his floater, shoot a little bit of a step back. And Simmons really made that difficult for him. He scored a t- couple of buckets on him but also had some turnovers as well when Simmons was growing so Simmons did uh do a really nice job and that's Luca is probably like the archetype of the guy that Simmons is going to do the best against I think Simmons well he still is a good option doesn't do as well against the guys who want to create space in the mid-range like Kawhi for example or Jimmy Butler you know, I don't think yeah yeah I don't think uh, although Simmons, Simmons has done a good job on that's Butler true. over the years actually uh it particularly in a game uh there was a real, a real classic that went to overtime last year in Miami between those two teams but uh like the guys who are like I want to create the space and just shoot over you from the mid-range Simmons d- isn't able to contest as well he's got a little bit shorter arms than like your typical stopper guy but Doncic isn't gonna like cross you up or or like get his shoulder into you and then rise up over you from the mid-range you know Joe Johnson style uh he wants to just kind of dribble around meander his way and ben simmons can stay really well attached to him. so he, he did a, an excellent job in that game helped again by the fact that dallas didn't really have any kind of spacing at the five they actually tried going with maxi kleba to start the third at center but that didn't really do do much for him either and uh the post-up stuff is interesting. I mentioned Embiid's 380 post-touches being the most in the NBA. He shoots 55% on 153 field goal attempts wow. out of the post. Uh, he's also been fouled 43 times in the post uh, as well. I mean, when you compare that to the number of field goal attempts, I mean, that's a, almost a third of the time that Joel Embiid tries to shoot, he's getting fouled. Uh, and uh, Embiid is not particularly effective as a passer. It does not have a lot of assists out of the post. 24 turnovers is not bad that's a lot better than it used to be for him and the 36 percent of the time uh, he'll pass out of the post is around average uh, in terms of post touches uh although again that doesn't count the number of turnovers that they have actually trying to get it into him but uh let's turn out of the raptors and this idea maybe of of lowry moving to philly 17 and 17 for toronto five and two since we last checked in on them or they're now on ice due to the coronavirus health and safety protocols plus 2.0 net rating is ninth in the nba 11th on offense which is actually up from where they were last year the defense is 12th and they project for the four seed right now 41 wins should be right on there over under as well that was one of our best bets i think it was both of our best bets wasn't it to yep. go over 41 maybe it was 41 and a half wins uh but yeah i mean it, despite their miserable start where they it was a two and eight was their start something like that uh they are 97 percent chance of the playoffs per raptor and 95 percent per elo and part of that is due to their upcoming schedule yeah 
Pelton's metric has them as the second easiest second half schedule, though that is going to get more difficult, probably, via what's going on now. And the Raptors, it looks like they're going to be the first test case of how the NBA is going to handle these like stoppages, team stoppages during the second half once the schedule set. Now it was easy enough to do beforehand. You just, you know, put the team on ice and see where it's going. And that started with Nurse and five coaches being in the health health and safety protocols. Siakam is also out out of in through the All-Star yeah. break and their game was S- canceled. Sergio Scariolo got his yeah. uh, first NBA win. Yeah. So and, and it just turned out, by the way, interestingly enough, that he was overseas coaching and came back in. And that's why he was he wasn't uh, put in the health and safety protocols with all the other coaches uh, because he wasn't with all the other coaches. And so that's why he was the only coach the game. Yeah. And so the wraps looks like the Bulls game that was canceled on Sunday. There's this window that a couple people have identified on April 8th when Chicago is going to be in the Southeast anyway, and both teams have a day, have a, have a, a, an opportunity where it wouldn't be a back to back to back. However, if they have to postpone another game during the stretch, and I think they will, like it kind of seems like that's where this, where this train is going, Detroit or Boston, then we start to get into the narrow window. And so it's looked like the NBA has tried to have its cake and eat it too of in terms of the cake being all the revenue they can get. Um, but there aren't that many places to add unless they're willing to start putting teams in back to back to backs. And so where is the rubber going to meet the road here? Is it going to be put these teams in really challenging situations in terms of travel and rest? Or is it going to be sacrifice some revenue? Yeah, as a fan, I hope that they just don't push it too hard. I think they're already pushing it too hard uh, on this, frankly. And I mean, as a fan of the whole league, if a Raptors game doesn't get made up, like there's plenty of other games to, to watch that night. I mean, this is all, it's all driven by local TV. Uh, and it's a, another conversation sometime of, of how local TV deals are a big barrier to change for the NBA. And it is that antiquated arrangement with the RSNs is a, a big problem for the league and something that is really an obstacle to reform. But that's too wide of a conversation for right now. But yeah, Kyle Lowry, you know, my thought was, it's really hard to match salary. You wouldn't do it for just like one first round pick. You're you still would like to try and win some games this year. So is that you know a late first round pick from a team like Philly? Is that really worth it for you? Well, what if it's a but what if, that's, what if yeah. it's a late first and like Tyrese Maxey, so like a recent first round pick? Yeah, I mean that gets to be a little bit more difficult. What is the matching salary though coming over from Philly? Philly is already in the tax. Well, yeah, so that that's they the point. Like people have said, oh, you don't have yeah. to include Tobias Harris, Ben Simmons, or Joel Embiid. That's true you could use Danny Green and then uh, probably Mike Scott you could maybe get there with with Seth Curry but I think the Sixers want to keep Seth Curry um and so but I, all that is all that is fair but I think the bigger takeaway of this of the of Keith Pompey's reporting is that this is the first tea leaf we've gotten that Kyle Lowry isn't going to be a Raptor in 2021-22 because remember I mean the Raptors yes they they have the opportunity to clear a bunch of cap space they lost some of that by giving Van Vliet a bunch of money by giving OG and Anobi an extension but I mean when Giannis signed and the the extension and basically everything dried up I wondered about that but as Toronto you aren't gonna let Kyle Lowry go especially because of their specific circumstances it is technically possible I once argued that Darren Williams should do this but then the Darren Williams Jerry Sloan thing was that that if you trade get yourself traded to a different team and then just 
re-sign with your original team after your contract expires. That is not prohibited. Um, but I don't think that's yeah. what's happening here. Well, the Raptors only have 13 million in cap space next year as of right now, too. Right. So, so that that to me is actually in some ways in, in the immediate more important than like Lowry on the Sixers, which I do think would be a really good fit. Is I think this is the first time that I'm like, oh, I guess they're going a different way after this year. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, but I, I think a lot of that is obviously driven by Kyle as well, and you know Keith Pompey is uh, Kyle is from Philly, uh, which is uh, important, and surely that would have a lot more appeal to Kyle Lowry than finishing this year in Tampa Bay, right? Uh, to actually be be home uh, in Philly, and so you know the reason I always thought this wasn't going to happen was both the salary and the price, uh, and the Sixers are as of right now. 15 million dollars into the tax if they don't trade one of those three guys now is would they move tobias harris and then and then pay more in terms of assets to get the raptors to take on tobias harris would you be interested in tobias harris as the toronto raptors as another piece for to be a scorer next to siakam i don't know how those two guys fit i mean and you've all got og ananobi as well so is Tobias Harris gonna be like your two on offense like that's I don't know how good that fit is either I mean now you know if you can get two first round picks out of it or two prospects you really like you know if it's Maxi and Thibel and a first would you then take on Tobias Harris for Kyle Lowry eh, yeah I mean that's not it's not out of the realm of possibility what do you think it's interesting because like I think there have been some people that have thought about that as being the package for more of like the Danny Green expirings model but if it's Tobias Harris then I think that's about maybe more of an appropriate return and I mean, that would be a, a more loaded guard rotation. I mean, I don't think the Raptors are going to do a ton with that cap space, especially now that like Giannis is off the board. I don't think there isn't anyone in 21 that really speaks to me. And 22, I mean, will the Raptors be, you know, like at that point, let's say they're a, a, a good but not elite team next year. Like, are they really going to be a free agent destination? They also, you know, they'll already have a bunch of their key guys on the books. I think you seriously consider that. Um, the other thing we want to talk about here is OG Ananobi and his offense. He was a subject of some discussion during our top prospects, uh, but you, you did a little bit of work up uh, on what his offense uh, has looked like so far this season. Yeah, and there are definitely some positive signs for Ananobi, and like he's shown a little bit more capability offensively, but the song largely remains the same. I mean, it's more like he's a little bit more capable with the dribbling. We saw some of that, and I, I saw it in those games against Indiana right when he came back from injury but in terms of the overall profile remarkably similar Ananobi taking more than a third of his attempts as spot ups same as last year getting a lot done in transition and very little in the traditional like ball dominant player categories he has been the pick and roll ball handler whopping 13 times he's only isolated 14 times and there are a couple other ways to think about this so one I wanted to look into was the way synergy does spot ups it's really when that player's possession starts as a spot up. So sometimes that can be a proxy for a, a drive, whether it's two dribbles and a good decision or driving all the way to the basket. So I'm like, oh, maybe maybe OG's doing more in those circumstances. Nope. Uh, of the 113 spot ups that he's had so far this year, 86% of them, or sorry, 86%, 86 of them 
have been straight jump shots, no dribble, driven 12 times, and then uh, driven to the basket 12 times, and then nine shots off the dribble and six turnovers. So he's occupying that space as a low usage shooter. However, to Ananobi's credit, he is making those shots overall for the season. 40% on threes, 5.8 per 36 minutes is his career high, making those shots, making his free throws as well, but he doesn't get there very often. So what I think is different, like, yes, there is the chance, you and I talked about this in the prospects pod, that he becomes a larger volume player. When I watch Ananobi, I don't see the, like, let's call them the Jalen Brown indicators where, okay, he's doing some stuff with the ball in his hands. It's just not what they're asking him. Ananobi has a little bit of facility there, but his role, he's just so limited right now. And I think he's good at what he does, especially with being such a wonderful defender. But I'm, let's call it skeptical, but not writing off the possibility that he becomes a dramatically larger role there. Though it is worth saying, I mean, OG at this point, he's only 23. He'll turn 24 in July. Yeah, and he's doing a little bit more as an isolationist, it would seem. Just every once in a while, he's showing you these flashes. Yeah, and Ananobi, like a lot of guys, I mean, this is this is true to an extent of like Ben Simmons as well. He really only isos when there's some sort of mismatch that could be a size one, like if a point guard ends up on him, and so he had a couple of plays like that. And then also, if there's a bigger guy, Ananobi went after Sabonis a couple of times. But there was some real growth in there. There was one where he just kind of beasted Chris Middleton. It was late in that in the fourth quarter of a game that was getting out of hand but I thought it was a nice play by Ananobi and then he also had one where he basically just moved Sabonis out of the way so you could see how that those things could really bear some fruit later on even if he's not like the primary guy just getting a little bit more into those actions not a lot of shake in Ananobi's handle but he has a lot of functional strength at this point so I think there there are some ways that he can improve the jump shot has gotten a lot better also taking more of his shots um he's actually taking fewer shots around the rim but making 70 percent at the rim right now so yeah I, I think that he he's an effective player right now i and i'm i'm interested to see whether he can do more all right well we are going to do more right now despite this incredibly long podcast we got more with uh eric pincus so stay tuned for that i was bringing in eric pincus now la based but covers the whole league a fellow cap dork been doing it for a lot longer th- than me actually uh in the public sphere you're probably the second guy who really started doing this right but after larry would you say i can't think i can't think of anyone else who's really doing know. a lot I of this stuff about that i've been doing this a while though i'll say that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you know Larry a long time. Uh, being out in LA, uh, writes for Bleacher Report, uh, Basketball Insiders. I, I rely extensively on his salary reporting. He's got salary sheets uh, for all 30 teams at, at Basketball Insiders. And the YouTube streaming you've been doing has been pretty cool tell people about that real quick before we get started oh yeah it's 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 a blast obviously we're in a situation where we have a little bit more time at home you know what i mean so i'm trying to make the best of it and i i found that like a couple hours sit down on stream and just kind of go over a topic usually uh something going on in, in either the news or just like let's talk about what the arenas rule is let's talk about uh what the hard cap is and and uh you know i can go an hour or two and sort of explain things and i'm doing like short videos that are just breaking down draft pick tables like i did one on the mavericks like why are they stuck with an inability to really trade many or any really first round picks uh and i just break it down in like 10 minutes and you just take a look and it's like oh okay so having fun with that yeah so one of the big trends that we are seeing here coming into the deadline i talked about this a little bit with sabrina merchant on my show on, on thursday but 
a lot of teams are really limited this trade deadline. Number one, with a, a lack of assets, but uh, more quote-unquote interesting to us cap dorks is how many teams are limited by the hard cap in trying to take on more money at this trade deadline season or even in the buyout market? Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I think this is, it's got to be a record. I don't think I remember anything close to it. I think it's 21 teams are hard capped. It might be 22. I'd have to double check. But just off the top, it's, it's almost the whole league. And so uh, for teams like the Clippers, that matters significantly because they're butted right up against it. Lakers uh, had to cut Quinn Cook, uh, had to trade JaVale McGee, really, to make their roster work because he was making about $4 million, and they just didn't have the room to do everything they needed. They felt they could probably get uh, more with like a, a minimum guy uh, and then have that ability to flesh out the rest of their roster. And you look across the league, it may not matter to some, but it, it even matters to the, the Celtics, who I'm sure are, are if our listeners are are well-versed in, in cap stuff know that they have this gigantic trade exception for Gordon Hayward for $28.5 million, but technically they can't use all of it because of this hard cap. Now, now they can use it by trading someone away to open up more space, but that's not that's not the point. The point is they can't use the whole thing. So there is some level of limitation, and, and that hard cap exists all the way through the draft as well. So it's not just a this season problem. It's a problem all the way through the draft. Now, you can make a trade at the draft that you agree to execute sure. uh, in, in, after the season in what would be normally July. Uh, I assume that's going to be, I mean, August, or I don't even know anymore. Uh, but let's assume August. And so you could still make moves, but th- there's this limitation exists, but it does go away. And next year, we'll see what what the trends are but this year it, it is it was just everyone went for that hard cap yeah and it's something that compounds that too that that's really interesting the lakers are dealing with this the bucks are really dealt with it already and are continuing to i call it the agent's revenge <laughs> because uh the unlikely bonuses that are in some of these contracts that you know teams are like ah you know who, who cares right like we're never making the nba finals uh when you know the atlanta hawks sign dennis Schroeder. I, I forget exactly what Schroeder's uh bonuses are but it's but then you get traded to a good team and they're hard Hard capped and all of a sudden oh wait these unlikely bonuses actually are essentially dead money for us uh, against the hard cap well yeah i mean they they can be used to pay a player more than you have cap room and it's very tricky yeah. and it's it's the league actually pushes back hard on it in fact like they there were some issues with kevin durant and kyrie irving and actually kcp when he signed they all had uh, unlikely incentives that were being gamed because like for instance with kcp and the lakers hadn't made the playoffs you put in like a playoff incentive and you know now you have lebron james and anthony davis you're gonna make the playoffs uh, and and it's unlikely that you do because they base it on the previous year. But then they also have like the agency to have an expert look at it and, and to judge and rule on it. So it's not like a hard set. If you didn't make the playoffs last season, it's 100% unlikely the next season. They use some level of, of logic, uh, but it is kind of dead money. And, and, and what's interesting, you know, for Schroeder, his salary against the cap was a little bit lower when they uh, when he was with the Thunder, but by acquiring him, uh, some of his, his incentives are like making it to the NBA Finals and winning a title. So his, his number actually jumped up a little bit. And then there's another interesting wrinkle. He has like his biggest incentive that's unlikely. So his, his salary right now, it's 16 on the cap. His base is 15.5. He's got 500 likely. Uh, he's got 1.5 unlikely. So 
against that hard cap, you have to count all of that unlikely money because the logic is you can't go over the hard cap period no matter what period, period, period. Yeah. That's why it's a hard cap. And so just the possibility that you could give him this incentive, they have to account for. But in the case of Schroeder, one of his incentives, the biggest one, a million dollars, is about making the all-star team. And obviously he wasn't named to the all-star team. And technically he could be named as a replacement. We, we're not talking about, would that be likely? It would not be likely, but technically it is possible. Uh, however, once you get past the All-Star game, it is no longer possible. So wouldn't it make sense that since they can't possibly pay him that $1 million, that it would come off of the Lakers' hard cap? And while logic would suggest, yeah, they, they should have that additional flexibility, not count that $1 million towards their hard cap, that's just not how it works. And, and I think the logic on the other side of that is, uh, you know, a guy might have an unlikely games played or some sort of numerical incentive and the team could technically game it so that the player doesn't reach that incentive. So that's that's kind of why it's you know a hard set rule, and they're not going to differentiate and say, oh well, you know this one case with Dennis Schroeder, we're going to let the Lakers have another million to spend. That's just not how it works. Yeah, and it's a, it's an important distinction that you draw there of when you're trying to sign guys with cap room you have a cap number and these unlikely or likely bonuses are determined on what happened the year before and so if you're trying to sign guys with cap room you can put in these unlikely bonuses that still could be reached uh however you're uh it doesn't count against the cap and and as long as you're not the last guy signing uh you, you can do that but then when you talk about the hard cap it is a different formula as you point out there so uh, you love to write about all these kind of interesting things uh, around the league you've always got uh, interesting suggestions for these teams what are some little like ideas you've had recently uh for some teams that may not be like apparent at first blush well, I like to approach like there instead of going with the no, because it's really easy to say no, because the rules are pretty yeah. prohibitive. Like there might be a yes somewhere. So let's like search for <laughs> the yes. And and sometimes there is no yes. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, there's no yes around the hard cap. Like it is it is hard set. But uh, I was looking over at Chicago and and, you know, there. This was even before Zach. I wrote about it on Bleacher Report, uh, and this was before Zach was Zach Levine was named uh, an All Star. So I wrote about it in about a month ago. And the issue is is that the Bulls can't give him an extension at market value, even before he was an All Star. This is a guy who is 25 and is expecting close to, if not the max, close to it. He's probably expecting the max. Let's be honest. Everybody who's everybody wants the max, but he's someone who you could arguably should or could command it. And you could definitely get into the debate of whether he should or could but that's not the point he's gonna want and they can't give it to him via an extension because the most you can extend a player is to 120 percent of your previous salary and he's making a you know, relatively low amount for what he's doing this year 19 and a half million i would love for that to be a low amount for what i do uh but the the, the way around it for the bulls is to restructure his contract which is pretty rare and so i i looked at it and they're under the cap as long as you're under the cap you can give your player a, a renegotiation or restructure it. As long as the money's going up, you can't pay a guy less. In the NBA, there's no way to say, okay, we're going to pay you less unless you're cutting them. Uh, you can't keep a player and, and, and pay them less. So the, the Bulls could use about $14 million in their cap space. You know, it depends on where the cap comes in and all that, but about $14 million of their cap space. And they could even get to somewhere in the neighborhood of like $50 million in space. Depends on where their pick lands and, and if they keep Thaddeus Young, who's been actually really good this year, and, and they probably keep him. 
but you don't have to use all your cap room, and but but some of it, and you could pay Zach the max. And given that he's a real flight risk for this team, it's a team that hasn't gone anywhere as far as playoffs. And yeah, they've had some momentum this year, but they're still you know borderline 500 team, probably under last. I haven't looked at the standings in the last couple of days, but they were under the last time I checked. But, you know, they're competitive compared to where they've been. Uh, I don't know what their long-term thinking is. I don't know if, uh, you know, Arturis, who, Carnisovas, uh, if I hope I'm saying that right, if he's, you know, he took over the team. He hasn't made any real changes to this roster since he took it over uh, from Gar Foreman. And, and does he want to reinvest in it? in the team that got the got the previous guy fired i i don't know the only change he's made is is drafting drafting patrick williams and signing garrett temple and maybe you know some two-way yeah. stuff but like they, it's almost the exact same roster are you going to reinvest in that but the way zach is playing and carrying this team uh I, I personally if i'm the bulls i i'd restructure him give him that money you could always trade him down the line if if um you know if you want to go in a different direction but to me that's where your money should go i don't think you're going to get some massive superstar there and you're certainly not going to get a star there if you're if you're letting Zach Levine go so you know just food for thought one of the 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 yeses I was able to find in what looked like a no as far as an extension yeah I mean that that really could make a a huge difference for him because they're limited to a little under 24 million dollars as a starting salary for him in a normal extension and so not only are you able to give him uh, a larger extension but you can also give him more money next year right away which is uh, that's a, that's money that you're just you're never going to get and so that could be part of the negotiation maybe you even get a little bit of a discount on him going forward if you bump him up to the max next year which would be a uh, for him uh this he'll have seven years of experience so he can get up to uh 33.7 million dollars projected so that's that's really a exciting possibility for the bulls to be able to do that um and and yeah, like you said, Larry Markin is kind of the, uh, his $20 million cap hold is going to affect things for them also. And I think also you, if you're able to offer him that extension at, at market value and he doesn't want to take it, then you have some clarity and, and you can move to trade him if it does seem like he doesn't want to be there. Whereas if you're just stuck with the normal extension, he can always be like, well, yeah, you know, I might want to resign. I might not, but you can't offer me market value. And so you don't get any clarity until he's already a free agent and then he can leave for nothing so yeah that is it can be a really powerful tool for them yeah you know that's not my favorite rule in the cba uh the the limitation like when you're uh, coming off of a rookie scale which is uh if you're a first round pick and it's after your first contract you can get a max extension where it literally says in the extension maximum and it's whatever the max is that year uh but you can't give an extension in other cases that's a market value. That's how, for instance, Utah lost Gordon Hayward at the time. Had they offered him a max extension, there's a reasonable chance he would have taken it. I, I don't. I can't. We can't say for sure. Yeah. But yeah. So, so what you're talking about extension. there is just the normal. You're just talking about the normal 120 percent. Yeah. Extension. Yeah. That that it's limited to that amount. It, yeah. To, to me, it's like the NBA wants teams in small markets who develop talent, find talent to be able to keep them and that's what the why there's so many advantages off of a first first round pick but it's like you know even in that second contract give the team that ab ability to pay them what they want to pay them and what the player wants and prevent them from going to free agency if they're willing if they're not willing then then fine go hit free agency but at least you know to your point of what you said with zach if he doesn't take that money if they offer it they have clarity now they know they need to trade him because he's not going to stick around uh if, if a team offers the max extension to a player and they don't take it 
they have clarity. But if, if it's 120%, it's not market value. You don't have that clarity. And now you hope the player is going to stay and they could say to you, well, I'm going to stay. But when the time comes, they leave and now you can't replace them. Similar to, to an extent of what uh, happened with Kevin Durant on some level, uh, leaving OKC. You know, there's a lot of promises and a lot of belief that, yeah, he's going to stay. And then they leave. Clarity is, is so valuable to teams who have to make these decisions that you know, impact their team for four or five years and it costs jobs and that GMs can get fired or whatever and their whole staffs could end up you know getting fired and the coach gets fired everyone gets fired because of one decision that you know I think this would be if, if I were to change the world and and at least this world the NBA world that's something I would look at yeah it's it's so funny I'm kind of of two minds of that I think that we reached a weird point where number one in the 2011 CBA they severely limited extensions much more limited than they are now they uh, yo-yoed back uh, in the 2017 CBA, but you, you still have some limitations on it. But the combination of not being able to extend at uh, out very far, and then also that the cap had gone up so much, so everyone's number that you're trying to build the extension off of was way too low. You know, that, that was really exciting. We saw a lot of guys reach free agency and end up changing teams as a result of that, which I actually kind of like. I think, you know, it's good for business for me as uh, oh, sure. if there's a lot of free agency and a lot of guys are changing team. But then on the other hand, as, as you point out, particularly for Levine, uh, for both the team and the player, right? Like the the Bulls, it ended up, they ended up matching that offer from Sacramento. It was deemed to be exorbitant at the time, but Lavina has well outplayed that now at 19.5 million. And so the Bulls got him a, on a good deal. And hey, guess what? Your reward for that is that it's really difficult to extend him and he might leave, right? Like, right. and for Zach Levine, he's been underpaid this whole time. And so you would think, well, hey, net, a, a way for him to get rewarded for outplaying his contract value would be able to get a better extension. And he can't do that either. But fortunately for the Bulls, they've managed their cap well and. Uh, they have the space to potentially do this, but a lot of teams, uh, it's not the case. Exactly. It, it, it just if both sides would want it, you would think, why is there a restriction on that? And it, you know, it, it is nuanced. There, you can argue it. I'm sure there are arguments against and for. But to me, this is one of the areas I think uh, hurts teams that and hurts players. And so if it's hurting both then they should have the ability because collectively just make make a change, at least in the next CBA negotiation. So the other thing you wrote about recently is the Minnesota Timberwolves. And what the heck are these guys going to do? Obviously, they got Chris Finch in now as the coach amid some controversy. But they are really impacted. Do you see any way out of this for them? You know, with their, I mean, they're, they're looking at next year being almost right at the tax already with the, whoever they're committed to before they even try to make some additions to this team that's the worst in the NBA right now. <laughs> yeah, I had actually written on them, I don't know, maybe Friday, Thursday, Friday, whatever, and we had scheduled it for Monday. And <laughs> then on Sunday night, like they fired the coach. So it, <laughs> it looked like I like, oh, man, you guys had this really like well-researched piece on on the Timberwolves. Like, you know, how'd you get that up so quick? I'm like, well, just, you know, Random, random chance. Uh, they, they, they treated their team like they're. You have to know who you are as as a franchise, where you are, and like for instance, the Nets going for Harden. They're they're going for it. They feel like we're at that championship level. We'll see if they are, but there's certainly an argument to say, okay, yeah, you're not rebuilding, right? Uh, whereas like the Thunder are are probably rebuilding. Like there's some teams that kind of get stuck in the middle. And I don't think that the Timberwolves were a team that were, they were like a piece away. Like they were really far away. And yet they acted like 
just adding Russell, D'Angelo Russell to Carl Anthony Towns would push that team into like contention. And so they gave away uh, a first round pick to the Warriors to get Russell that's top three protected this year. And what's bad about top three protection, even if you're the worst team in the league, there's it's still more than 50% that you're going to lose the pick because just yeah. you know, just the lottery odds. So it's it's the it's more, I mean, it's not more, li- more likely than not, I guess, you're going to keep the pick, I guess. I, it depends on how you look at it. You're probably... It doesn't, you don't do that is what I'm saying. It's just that simple. It's unprotected in 2022 and fine if that's really what gets you to contention, but they didn't have the rest of the pieces. Uh, They have some young pieces. They had some old pieces and they brought in Rubio, Ricky Rubio to be a true point guard. Uh, Malik Beasley is a really good scorer, but like they drafted at the same position, Anthony Edwards, and you've got Malik Beasley, who's a two and really D'Angelo Russell's like, in all honesty, he's more a two than a one. I mean, he can definitely do some things as a playmaker, but he's not like a, a true one. So you kind of have three guys at the same position, plus Carl Anthony Towns. And look, I, I understand you know what Cat has gone through this year. I have tremendous sympathy for him. He's gone through a lot. And there have been injuries, and, yeah. and they haven't had a chance to really evaluate it on the floor. But let's be honest, even if this was a, a team at full strength, they're not very good. They're just not. They're, it's not a great roster. They're overinvested in, in, in a team that is right, like you said, at the tax line, more or less next season they don't have their first this year or next uh and they have three guys at the same position they have a couple of point guards who can't score in rubio and and a younger guy uh jordan mclaughlin who's solid as as a as a point guard but not really a scorer uh on a two-way no less and so you know the way out i don't think it's you know what i wrote is that it's not reasonable that they're going to trade Edwards given that they just drafted him number one and all that goes with making that decision and as well as LaMelo's playing and Halliburton. There are guys who are outplaying him, even though he had a great dunk the other day, which was a great dunk, even though he didn't shoot well in that game. And Oh, uh, whoa, whoa. Yeah, don't, don't, don't put that out, Eric. We're, you, just, you're... Uh... You're, a, I just a, don't want you to suffer my fate. Is this <laughs> a trigger warning? Let's, let's just move on. <laughs> I, I like Anthony Edwards, right? I just don't know how you build a team around three shooting guards. That's the main point. So it's not that Anthony Edwards yeah. is, isn't the right guy. It's that Anthony Edwards at the same position as D'Angelo. And if you want to argue that D'Angelo can play the point, fine. Okay, yeah. you can do a backcourt with the two of them. But you know, let, Edwards is like 6'4", Russell's 6'5", definitely can make it work in a, as far as size in the backcourt. But there's no one there on that team who's really up to snuff against the toughest position in the league, which is like the power small forwards, the LeBrons, Kawhis, Tatum, you could argue Giannis, like guys who are at the 3-4 position uh, who are overpowering. And in a lot of ways, that's been driving the league. It's not, you know, okay, you, do ha- you yeah. still have the Jazz who are a big and a guard, but most teams... Teams are built at the wing, and so you know to the you know to kind of get to the the bottom of it. I, I think the only way out is to trade Beasley. I just you know, and he's got this personal issue with some off court stuff. So you know, he's suspended currently, but he'll be back soon, and and hopefully this will all be behind him. But he's not a a, a, a no brainer. Yeah, let's go get him for his talent for every team. They may have some qualms about some of the off court stuff, but like if you're not trading Edwards, which I you know again I wouldn't even recommend, uh, and you're not trading Towns and Russell, well, well is there a market for Rubio? And you know it's a non-scoring guard who's making 18 million, and is you know maybe the Clippers could use him because they could use a point guard. Uh, but then are you taking back you know Patrick Beverly and it's equivalent more yeah, or less? I, you know? I think Beverly is better for the Clippers than Rubio personally. Well, I mean, like at, at least Rubio is a setup guy and a true point in that guard, but he can't score and isn't as good a defender as Beverly. Whereas Beverly 
when you have Beverly and you're the Clippers, you're relying on a non-point guard. So it, 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 it puts the onus on Paul George and Kawhi. And I think that works regular season. It hasn't worked yet in a very limited sample in the bubble in the playoffs under a different coach, under Doc Rivers. So we don't really yeah. know. It might 100% work this year. It also might not, yeah. and I personally think they're missing a point guard. Doesn't mean you get Rubio. It might be George Hill off of a buyout or a trade. It might be someone else. But, you know, I'm, I'm trying to fix the Wolves. <laughs> Yeah, and that's that's it's not an easy thing. So, you know, they're also for sale and that that complicates things, too. So, you know, it, it's not a great position. We don't know. You know, I think changing the coach was inevitable. Uh, don't you know, teams? I don't think they listen to me. You know, maybe they do. Maybe they don't. But like, don't hire your coach before your GM. Like, let the GM bring in the coach because it just uh, it it never worked. Oh, no, 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 Eric. Actually, it was it was a, a totally open process. Uh, Gerson Rosas had full autonomy to pick the coach he wanted, uh, but it just so happened that the uh, the previous coach was actually on the hiring committee to, to hire him. But no, he had full autonomy to fire that guy <laughs> if he wanted. To. I mean, I, look, it, it, politics run teams. There's a you know certain level of nepotism, cronyism, relationships, uh, whatever. It, it's part of the business. And look, you know, I had heard that there was a, a, a an executive who had been offered a job recently as the top executive, didn't want the coach. The owner really wanted that coach, and the guy didn't get the job. The next, you know, the replacement said, yeah, I'll take the coach. I love him. And then after a year, fired the coach. You know what I mean? Like, say yes. (laughs) Get the job. Then just be patient. Let the guy go. But ultimately, the coach is not going to last. I mean, unless it's like, you know, Popovich or there are some coaches who have that cachet, but most don't. And certainly Saunders did not, even though there's a great relationship, you know, based on, on, you know, his history with his father and all that. I get it. Uh, but you know, the, the Finch thing, he was, a uh, an assistant in Houston when Gerson, uh, the, the GM or the top executive of the, of the Wolves was in Houston. So he, he picked his guy and that's what they do. And not it, is it, we could debate, you know, certainly there, the coaches association, you know, took offense to how it was done and, and had merit in what they're complaining about uh, as far as really looking and doing an open, transparent search and uh, making sure you're looking at a diverse group of candidates. He went and got the guy he wanted, but that's what most most executives do. And it's that's the point. Don't hire your coach before the executive. Well, these and many other observations uh, will be available to you if you check out the Sports Business Classroom Draft Academy, which is taking place from uh, March, March 15th. 15th to March March 19th. So tell us a little bit uh, about what you're going to be doing there. Uh, well, I'll be helping to host it uh, with Almin Alhassan and Ryan McDonough. And uh, it, it's, you know, you, you know, Nate is being a part of Sports Business Classroom over in Las Vegas, uh, each summer league that it, it's it's one of the best interactive programs for for not only teaching and learning, but also networking for students uh, young adults, uh, me, you know, older adults, people my age, uh, who want to get in the industry, uh, it, be it on the team side, the agent side, uh, through the G League, through coaching, uh, through the salary cap, um, through the media, uh, I mean, all aspects. And, and it's it's interactive. It's, it's not just like you're going to sit and listen to a panel. And it's not like just watching a webinar, right? Like the, a webinar is great and you can get a lot out of it. But this, you're participating with partnering up with other students and you're going to get... Uh, a team and you're going to act as that team and and we're going to have a, a trade deadline. We're going to have a war room where 
you're going to get uh, you're going to compete against other students and other teams and try to make trades they have to make sense they have to work under the salary cap and you have to learn how all that works and, and we've got all these experts coming and i can't necessarily announce all the names because i you know, i'm going to let the program do it but you know we're talking about uh, some of the best coaches owners executives media personalities you know the the elite of the elite and you know the ultimate goal is to get people jobs get our students jobs and like one of our students uh makar gavorkian i'm I'm probably pronouncing it wrong um he he's now with the nets uh he was someone who was an excellent student and then we he worked i worked with him after the class privately and just tried to you know make sure he had all of his uh salary cap uh you know everything up up to date and fully understood it and now he's with the nets and uh, one of our students won uh, an nba tv show gm school kalita taylor she's awesome uh love kalita uh, Buddy Scott has an internship with the MBPA and like Malik Rose, who you might, of course, remember famously, of course, with the Spurs, took our class multiple times. He's now has a vice president job with the league and operations. So uh, it, it is uh, truly a joy for me to participate in. Um, I, I think, you know, if you're listening, you could tell how much I love doing this. And we put that kind of energy. It's over four days uh, or is that five days, 15 through the 19th. Uh, and uh, you're going to learn. You're going it, to it's not it's not for the faint of heart. Like you, you're going to it's it's. It's the best kind of work. Like you're really going to learn uh, you know, about how yeah, this it's, works. it's 8 a.m. 8 to 8 p.m. every day. <laughs> and I, I miss doing it in person in Vegas because you know, for me, the, the it's the personal relationships that I, I get out of it that ultimately like means the most. And but what's you know, we're, we've adapted to this world. And so we had a, a virtual version of it in August. Uh, and it was it was fantastic. It was it was and I've kept in touch with um, so many students and, and it's great to see them move on and, and get positions with teams. You know, one of one of our students is running the the the, the uh, Wizards G League team. Right. Like it, it's it's amazing how um, how far so many have gotten. Uh, and and it, it's a tribute to the kind of people that that we get because they love what we're doing. But if you put in a lot, you're going to get a lot out of it. And uh, I'm, it's Amber Nichols. Jeez, her name escaped me. But I love Amber. Uh, she runs the Capital yeah, City Go-Go. For, former Dunked On podcast guest, by the uh, way. She's she's truly one of my favorite people in this industry. And uh, But that's the thing. It's like you you show up, you you come in with the right attitude, and you're going to get noticed. And that that's really the hardest part uh, of you know, showing. Everyone brings some value to this world. And, and, and if you're passionate about it and you put in the work, it, it's just hard to be noticed. Um, but... Uh, you're going to interact with uh, the experts. You're going to be able to ask questions. You're going to be able to participate in, in office hours and you know AMAs and you know video you know online AMAs, not just like a, you know Reddit style, but like you know seeing the person talking to the person. So anyway, I, I I can't speak highly of it enough. It's a privilege to be a part of. Uh, but go ahead and check it out. It's the Draft Academy Sports Business Classroom. Uh, you can find it also on on my Twitter. I recently tweeted out, but uh, it, it is it is truly the best program. Yeah, and at a minimum, uh, you're going to have a lot of fun. Again, that's sportsbusinessclassroom.com slash draft dash academy. And uh, follow Eric Twerka and uh, Basketball Insiders. His salary sheets are invaluable. Thanks again for coming on, Eric. Appreciate it. Anytime, Nate. Thanks for having me. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 